Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're going to be talking about the DC books for August 10th, 2021. As you can see, I finally made it home uh, after a, quite a long journey. Good to have uh, you back. <laughs> finally, finally arrived safely. Uh, if you're curious about what the heck we're talking about, uh, Rocky was kind enough to join me for a recap of last week and all the, the travel woes, as well as a, a recap of the Terrificon convention, which... Uh, I, I quite enjoyed. So, go go take a listen to that uh, episode if you're if you're so inclined. Uh, the other thing I'll mention, and first of all, uh, give Rocky my thanks for keeping the the home fires burning, as I've been saying. No, it's not uh, good. You know, I, I was trying to j join while in the car and didn't always have great reception. But I think overall, when I finally did get a chance to, to check out the books, last week was a pretty darn good book. I definitely enjoyed seeing Amanda Waller kind of get hers. Uh, I thought <laughs> Nice House on the Lake was fantastic. Suicide Squad, I Crushing Lobo was good. A crime Syndicate ended on a high note for me. So, yeah, overall, I thought last week was a pretty good, pretty good week. Green Lantern, I was kind of iffy on. Uh, Swamp Thing, which I said I was not going to read, I ended up <laughs> reading anyway. Justice League is, you know, Justice League, but. Yeah, overall, a pretty strong week. I, I can't say that I feel the same about this week. And Rocky and I were, were talking about it before we started recording. And I sort of feel like maybe, you know, we're going to talk about about uh, maybe around 13 books this week. Plus, there's some free comic book day stuff coming out. It's just overwhelmingly Batman. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like I'm just getting Batman out, you know. Uh, I understand he's a popular character. I understand he pays the bills over there at DC. And there are, is some good Batman content, but... God, DC, you have other characters that are really interesting as well, and yeah. so yeah, yeah. I, agree. I I love Batman, but I got to say, I'm I'm loving my my personal favorites for DC right now are uh, with Suicide Squad uh, is really hitting it out of the park. Uh, I'm actually enjoying Teen Titans a bit, Justice League Glass Ride. I, uh, you know, uh, there's just there's just some other things that are on the plate right now that i'm enjoying I, I don't mind batman but i like it when he's an ancillary character a little bit uh batman urban legends is picking up uh this week uh or or will be picking up uh and it, it's very interesting it's there's a lot down the pipe but it's not all batman so it's nice to see other characters get some love but this week a little bit too much batman yeah i agree and and with more with hints of more batman to come and that i think more than anything has me um you know, not real happy, but we'll talk about it when we get there. Um, yep. So let, we're going to, we're going to kick it off. We're going to talk a little bit about, about the free comic book day books. There is a Batman free comic book day book. Of course uh, we've got John Ridley and James Tynan as writers. We've got Jorge Jimenez travel foreman as uh, the pencilers. We've got Norm Ratman on inks. We've got uh, Tamea More handling the colors. Um, so there, the first story, which is just sort of a, a prelude to the fear state event that Tynan has coming up is from your regular Batman uh, creative team, right? So Tynan's writing, Jorge Jimenez is handling the art, Tomei More does colors. And then there's a, uh, a second uh, feature in this free comic book day book. That's basically half the pages from uh, I am Batman zero, which we're going to talk about in details. Uh, but it's the same creative team, John Ridley pencils by, uh, Travel Foreman and uh, inks by Norm Ratman, colored by by Rex Locus. So I'm not really going to cover that here because we're going to talk about I Am Batman Zero. Uh, but as far as the the prelude to Future State, I mean it. It's quality stuff from the same sort of team that uh, that we've 
been getting in the regular Batman title. But what and there's a little bit of a prose uh, feature after where Tynan talks a little bit about what he wants to do. He's basically leveling up the Scarecrow, and it's this um, this big event where the Scarecrow is sort of uh, using something he's never done before. Like there's no fear toxin. He's using like real world events, uh, uh, kind of manipulating the magistrate and manipulating Batman and manipulating the, um, the way the, the citizens see the unsanity collective, all that to sort of put Gotham in a, in a state of fear, thus the name fear state that he, he thinks is a way to sort of, um, get Gotham to evolve, I guess is, is what he's talking about. Um, And Tynan himself, he said, I wanted to create a massive attack on Gotham City organized the scarecrow, organized by the Scarecrow, where he doesn't use a single drop of fear toxin on the people of Gotham. He's yeah. manipulating the media, he's manipulating the magistrate, manipulating Batman, insanity. He's taking all these pieces and putting them together to make the people of Gotham City more frightened than they've ever been. Uh, okay, so here's why I'm not a fan. We just had a big giant, oh, Gotham City is put through uh, hell with the Joker War. I just, it's too much at this point, like enough with this, oh my God, Gotham City. Like at this point, anybody who lives in Gotham City is a moron. There's no, there's no reason to live there if it's just one giant event after, like, honestly, you would move somewhere else. It's enough with these big giant, you know, oh, it's Joker and he's tearing Gotham down around its ears. Now it's the Scarecrow, like... No, can we just get some regular, normal Batman stories? I'll point to what Tomasi and, and Brad Walker did in Detective Comics, where it's just a, it's a classic Batman story. It can fit in any era of Batman. Uh, the city's not falling down around itself. Like I just I'm I'm tired of this sort of thing. The stakes have never been higher. Gotham City will never be the same again. I, I'm done, man. I really, really am done with this kind of Batman storytelling. So. I've hung on with Tynan. I mean, I think he's an incredible writer. I think he's incredibly talented. But unfortunately, the, the Batman stuff he's doing is, I think, the weakest of the work he's putting out now. Department of Truth is better. Um, Something is Killing the Children is better. Uh, Wind that he has over at Boom is better. Um, the Batman stuff is just, it's its tired. It just feels tired at this point. You know, like, we didn't we literally just do this with Joker? Now you swap out the villain. Now it's Scarecrow instead of Joker, but it's the same thing. All all the Batman family has to come together to try to stop this. Uh, I, I don't know. It just feels old and tired, and I'm ready for for something new with with Batman. Remember Rocky? How after Joker War, Bruce was going to have no resources, and it was going to be something new and different. It hasn't yeah. really uh, until this week's Detective Comics, which it does touch on it. It hasn't, f- and and even then, it was it really of a consequence. We can talk about it when we get to Detective, but. It hasn't. This hasn't felt any different. It really hasn't, despite him not having the Batcave or the Fortune. Hasn't seemed to impede him. It feels like it's the same old thing with Batman. I don't know. Maybe you feel differently in this preview well, with the Fear State. I, I. It's hard for me not to have some degree of sympathy with your your point of view in that regard. Uh, I. I know that there's a. I think it's a little bit divisive that the Batman fan base. It, I'm I'm on the side of uh, I'm enjoying Tinian's uh, storyline. I I think this this does feel different than Joker War and City of Bane. I, I think Tinian has brought his own story to it. But I do acknowledge that 
you're absolutely right when, you know, this is definitely every Batman story. It's always Gotham's at stake and everything else, but that's just the way it is. And, and I suppose the one consolation that you have is that there's all kinds of Batman stories because it's Batman, Batman, Batman for DC. So if you don't like Tinian's interpretation or the bigger event, uh, there's always, you always have options when it comes to Batman, but I, I'm still a fan of it. I, I, you know, we got, we got some great art. I, I'm, I'm enjoying this story. I think it's a unique take or not. I mean, how, how unique can you get with Scarecrow after a while? But it yeah. is, it actually is a little bit more unique with Scarecrow. He's using, he's using the genuine fear uh, in this particular free comic book day issue. He actually does inject Batman with some, some unknown chemicals that are a variation on his fear toxin. But in actual fact, he's stoking genuine fear in the citizens of Gotham. And his reasoning is actually quite, uh, straightforward. He he thinks Batman has become a better hero because Batman's overcome his fears, and he wants to challenge the people of Gotham to essentially do the same thing. So he's doing a favor for the people of Gotham, you know, stoking the fears. And of course, he always has his own agenda, but that's that's Scarecrow's reasoning. And and we did see this coming with Future State and everything else. And I and I think that you know, look with with people's if to the degree that you're frustrated with Future State, if you're coming into this. Uh, and you're already, you know, you're, I, I actually enjoyed Batman Future State with, with you know, with uh, Tamaki's, with Dan Mora, Tinian's and, and, and uh, Jose Jimenez on the art. I, I'm actually enjoying Batman. This is the one journey that I'm, I'm actually enjoying. And, and I, I've, I'm an outlier on this, but I, for a, for a Batman big event, I compare this to like, you know, I enjoyed Batman's. It reminds me a little bit. I enjoyed Bat. I think of all the classic Batman events that I really love, like No Man's Land and Cataclysm. And uh, this is kind of up there a little bit. And it's and this is building to something future state. I don't mind it. I'm, I'm having a little bit more fun with it than, than you are, clearly. Yeah. I mean, I, I can kind of see your point. But again, it just feels been there, done that. And yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just... I'm ready to see something a little, just something a little, can we, just a yeah, something different. I mean, I, I just think Tynan's better than this. And there's too many things that just don't logically make, make sense for me. Um, which, you know, I guess when it comes to villains, it doesn't always, you know, the whole thing is no masks. Right. And yet every one of the peacekeepers wears a mask. It just <laughs> what makes no sense. It's just yeah. dumb. Uh, but anyway, moving on free comic book day, Cami Garcia, Gabriel Piccolo. Uh, this is the critically acclaimed creative team that's brought some great young adult stories uh, to DC, the Raven story, and then the Beast Boy. Well, now they're teaming them up uh, with Beast Boy Loves Raven. So if you're a fan of, of either of those young adult graphic novels from DC, either the one that focused on Raven or the one that focused on Beast Boy, uh, they're about to, their paths are about to collide in Nashville of all places. So, uh, not don't don't really have much else to say other than that. Uh, it, it's obviously outside of you know regular DC continuity. These are different versions of the characters. I think Cami Garcia brings um, a freshness to these you know young heroes that are around seventeen years old. And uh, Piccolo's art is is great. He he does a great job of of storytelling and of making them look their age, which we know isn't always easy to do, as evidenced by recent artist on John Kent. Um, and so, yeah, if, if this is your cup of tea, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, I think Cami Garcia is, is, is one of the better ones. Uh, she's, uh, she's definitely written uh, more, more than a couple. The art, 
I actually quite enjoyed it. I actually did actually read this, and I was actually pleasantly surprised at how uh, how interesting it actually I actually found it. It was, uh, you know, it, the the good thing is that they have they both have backstories, and if you've, uh, uh, I I ha I did happen to read the two previous uh, the two previous they have originating graphic novels as well leading into this. And now these two characters, Beast Boy and Raven, uh, they meet each other and Raven is not too interested in, in Beast Boy, but boy, he sure is interested in her. And yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's good. It's well-written. It's uh, beautifully rendered. The arts, the arts are fantastic. And I can definitely, see, I, I can see the attraction of some of this stuff. You know, it's very odd. I, I find that, some of this stuff, I have a visceral dislike of some of these DC young adult lines. I just really don't like them. But some of this, I actually like. I can get, see myself getting into. I find that very interesting that I can just, like, there's some of, some of these, as I said, I have a very widening, you know, kind of taste when it comes to this sort of thing. But, uh, you know, but this is one that I think is actually pretty good. And I, I hope it's successful because th this feels the most real to me. It, it feels... And I don't want to. I don't want to upset anyone's sensibilities when I say this, but it just feels a little less woke. It feels a little more fun to me. If that makes any sense? Like it's not. Uh, and uh, you know, and I'll just leave it at that. I just. I think this is more. It's what it should be. This is fun. Cami Garcia, I think, gets it a little bit more than most. Than shall I say, Marika Tamaki. I like Marika Tamaki on Batman, but boy, I find she's really a miss for me on her young adult uh, stories for DC. Yeah, uh, I haven't read the the previous stuff that Cami Garcia has done, but I want I want to. I need to make time for it because um, I, I absolutely loved her Joker Harley uh, Black Label book. So I think she's a very very talented writer. Uh, there's another, and man, I feel like DC has more free comic book day books this year than, than a long time. They have four different titles uh, as opposed to the last couple of years. I think they've only had two, so kind of doubling down. But anyway, there's a Batman and Robin and Howard, which is a preview of a a graphic novel from. New York Times bestseller Jeffrey Brown. I'm not really familiar with his work, but this definitely seems aimed at younger readers. Uh, it's a little bit more of a uh, like a children's book style art, uh, and it was it was kind of fun. Uh, I did read it. Damien starting out at a new school, and then it's a flip book with Amethyst by Shannon Hale and Dean Hale, who are also New York Times bestselling authors, uh, children children's book authors. And uh, this was an Amethyst story, and I thought if if, if somebody is trying to get their kids interested in, in comics with the interesting female protagonist, this Amethyst of Princess of Gem World, which is coming in uh, the full graphic novel, which is coming November, 2021, may be a, a great way to go, um, go after that uh, and, and have something to share because it's a pretty fun story. And I thought the art was, was really strong. Obviously neither one of these is really not the target audience. Um, but again, I think they're, they're, this is exactly what free comic book day should be, right? Like aimed at some younger readers, get them interested in reading and get them interested in some characters and, yeah. you know, build some, build some DC fans. Yeah, no, I agree. It was, uh, the empathy story was actually pretty good. I, I quite liked it. Uh, it. It was, it was well done. It was well done. I'm not generally a fan of that sort of new wave. I, I'm, I'm very picky with my art. I, I know art's very nuanced, but there's a particular style of manga that I'm not a fan of, but yet, a little bit of a tweak and I love it. So it's one of those things that's hard for me. I lack the language upon which to adequately describe my artistic tastes, but this, I actually kind of thought I enjoyed this, uh, which I found surprising 
but no, it was it, it's it's fun. It's and and you're absolutely right. This is exactly what you need for you know. It's really rare to see comic books free in a comic book shop, uh, and it's frankly we need more of it with prices going up three ninety four ninety five ninety nine. Uh, it's just it's getting to be a little bit crazy yeah the last one i'm sure will do really well um and it's going to continue in a, a one shot i think if not a limited it's king shark it's written by tim seeley scott collins is the artist john kalis does the colors what's happened on letters uh you know just in time for suicide squad and again i think this is one of those situations where uh, the Suicide Squad King Shark Special Edition is it, it's probably the same thing you're going to get in uh, the regular King Shark series. It's probably a, a straight one for one. Uh, and then there's a backup in it, which um, sort of leads into the the Black Label book that Rocky talked about last week. The uh, the Black Label uh, by Brian Azzarello, Suicide Squad, Get Joker, number one, which is on sale right now. Um, so we're kind of getting the story of how Jason Todd got recruited basically. So that's the two stories in the last one. And I have a feeling this may be one of the more popular ones with uh, King shark from what my understanding, stealing every scene he's in, in suicide squad. Although I, you know, I haven't seen the movie yet, but it's going to be the, the probably the, the free comic book day book from DC that everybody's going to want and be talking about. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's actually, it's actually a lot of fun. Uh, it's basically King shark. Uh, it actually take the the central character in this in the King Shark story is this new character. I guess, well, she's not new. She's the defacer, and she she kind of had a thing with Nightwing uh, for a while. And anyway, she's you know Amanda Waller wants to re- essentially re- recruit her to to follow King Shark because King Shark is in uh, protects her while she's in uh, Belle Reve, and uh, by killing one of the other inmates that are that's bullying her and of course king shark of course eats this other uh villain that's in the uh in bell reeve prison and it's 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 actually quite good and bell and we get to meet king shark's family and we we learn a little bit a little bit about it's a summary of king shark's past which sort of summarizes his his first appearance in the pages of uh, superboy issue nine for speculators and it follows his his history and it brings us it brings new readers really up to date of King Shark in the DC universe. And because if you already watched Suicide Squad the movie, he pretty much looks the same. Uh he talks a little bit better. <laughs> but anyways, it's uh it's actually quite good and it's uh beautifully rendered. The art's fantastic. So I think it's absolutely not only will it sell the best for or be given away the most for free comic book day, I think it is actually the best comic for free comic book day, in my opinion. But uh, sorry, Tra- Jace can't hear you, buddy. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize I was muted. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, it, it, it's a lot of fun, uh, and I agree with you. It'll probably be the one people look for the most. But I, I sort of feel like it doesn't necessarily have as much consequence as as the Batman, only because the Batman leads into Future State. Yeah. Um, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. Uh, well, let's go ahead and talk about I Am Batman Zero. Uh, as I said, it it you get a big chunk of the story in that. Batman free comic book day uh, issue sort of the middle part of this story is, is what that the second half of that Batman free comic book day issue is uh, it's written by John Ridley pencils are by travel Foreman, inks by Norm Ratman colors by Rex Locus, as I mentioned earlier. And basically this is just Tim or, or Jace Fox starting to get his feet under him. You know, it's a zero issue. He, he has ideas. And if you haven't read the Batman second son, 
you know, that was digital first. You probably want to read that because it leads directly into this. We see characters from that story show up here and it's Jace trying to find his way. And I understand what John Ridley is trying to do and I get it. And I, unfortunately I think it doesn't work for me. Um, you know, the plan was to take Bruce Wayne off the table completely and have an African-American Batman, uh, a person of color under the cowl. Fine. I have no problem with that. The problem I have is that it didn't happen. It didn't happen the way they planned it, right? So now we have two Batmans, two Batmen. You have Jace Fox trying to become Batman. You already have Bruce Wayne as Batman. It's It, it doesn't work for me. Uh, obviously, Luke Fox is Batwing, so you can't have him become Batwing. Like, it it just it doesn't work for me that it's too confusing just call him something else but then oh he's not good enough to have the mantle of batman then take bruce wayne off the table I, you know i don't care just having him like what what is the point why is he trying to become batman and take up the mantle of batman and call himself batman he needs to bring a different name and i i get it right then you're and yeah. and i'm not saying that he it, it, it should, we shouldn't have a person of color under the cowl. I'm just saying having two of them doesn't, for me, doesn't work. I mean, I guess with Marvel, they did it with, with Spider-Man, right? You had Miles Morales, Spider-Man, you have Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and eventually uh, Miles came over from the Ultimate Universe, and now there's two. And, and even that, it kind of bucks me that there's two heroes with exactly the same name. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it doesn't work for me. And, and even though I've read the, uh, the Second Son digital series, I feel like I need to go back because I still don't understand exactly what what tim or jace's motivations are like it just i, I still don't understand why he wants to change his name I, I i i didn't understand i think that's such a confusing point like what was the point it's of all that? it's all confusing he's tim he's jace he's batman he's not like, Batman. like it's all yeah it's it's all convoluted it doesn't make sense and that's the biggest problem i have with it and then you talk about the art right now travel foreman uh, he, he is a chameleon when it comes to an artist. If you go back and look at his stuff that he did on Animal Man when New 52 first came out, it was so kind of spooky and creepy with these fine lines and, and um, it was very visceral and it was just so different and unique. And then the more recent stuff I've seen him do has just been very uh, traditionally super heroic, almost like a DC house, house style. And then we get to this book and it's the most generic art with hardly any detail. Uh, you look at the faces that he draws. Um, th there's all the features there, right? Like people have two eyes, they have a nose, they have a mouth, but there's no character in the faces. It's like he's drawing for, I, I don't know, like a cartoon or something where there's there's no there's no textures. There's it, it just I I don't. I don't understand this art at all. It, it's just the most plain vanilla art I've ever seen. And I, I've seen travel Foreman do so much more than this. I don't, I don't understand if he was rushed. I, I just, yeah, I, the art just left me cold. Um, there's a few scenes. Uh, the first time that, that uh, Jace puts on the armor um, and he's coming, walking out of the smoke where there's some texture on the, the armor, even if the, proportions don't look exactly right. Like why is his hand significantly bigger than his head? Uh, but at least there, there's a few panels there in the action scenes where, uh, where there's some textures. Um, but overall I, I thought the art didn't, the story wasn't very good and the art didn't do it any favors. Like reading this makes me not want to 
read any more of, of this, you know, and I've already been struggling because again, I just, I don't know what John Ridley is trying to do. And I feel bad for him because I think he was told us, he was told one thing, Hey, you're going to be writing the Batman title and it's going to have this, you know, pretty much unknown character, Tim Fox or Jace Fox or whatever under the cowl. And that's the story you're going to tell. And he could have done all this stuff, but now he's playing second fiddle. Is anybody paying attention to this? Because we still have Bruce Wayne. People are still reading Batman. They're still reading Tynan's Batman and Tynan's doing what he's doing. And people are reading that. And this is kind of flying under the radar. And so in a way he's sort of being handcuffed. And I feel like, and I've talked about this before uh, in the future state books, when we covered them, it's like, he's trying to create this empire. If you're familiar with that Fox show, he's trying to create that kind of a family dynamic with Lucius Fox and his kids right? That it's all about legacy and whatnot. Uh, I really don't care. Well, like Lucius Fox has not ever been a big enough part of the DCU that we should, that I feel like the stakes are there for us to care. He's been an interesting character, but he, he hasn't been like, if it, if it was Alfred and if it was Alfred's family, then I get it right. Like Alfred's been around long enough and there's been enough stakes and there's been enough stories with Alfred and we're, we're invested in who Alfred is. I don't feel like anybody's really invested. Is there any, is there any comic fan out there who, who's like Lucius Fox is my favorite comic book character. I need, I need a Lucius Fox story. I need a, a, a story about the Fox family that that's where, where my passion lies. It, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me and nothing I've read so far in future state or in the second son digital first series or in this issue makes me care enough about Tim or Jace or whatever his name is nothing has happened to make me care about this character to the point where I'm going to read a series starring him. And then it does, you know, I don't even have the art to pull me in because the art is just very vanilla. So for me, this is a big miss. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you feel differently, Rocky. Well, I, I, I will. I'm going to defend it a bit. Uh, having read second son and, and we, we've not reviewed Batman second son. It's largely been uh, digital. It was digital first and it, you can buy the, uh, the monthly, the, the floppies of it. Uh, which I, I believe it is finally completed. It was four issues long and physical copies. And it's not bad. I, I, I will say this. Look, if you're going to do an African-American Batman, which is what the whole point of this was, you need an, you, you need to have some story narrative to justify it. And Lucius Fox is a natural character to, to migrate to. And it makes sense. Lucius Fox was the genius behind a lot of the tech that Bruce Wayne had. The fact that you know, Bruce, and the fact, frankly, that, that Bruce Wayne, at least when they were planning this uh, new this new Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne was off the table. And so it made sense. And Lucius Fox was the one that still alert, was still, you know, Bruce Wayne might be broke, but Lucius Fox is still a billionaire and still has all that tech. And Lucius Fox is still a genius. And he's got a family with, with uh, a family uh, with uh, Tim and Luke and his uh, daughter Tammy, uh, who they've got, you know, different degrees of, I guess, military background, skills. So I think the potential is there. I actually like some of the characterization. I think that the family dynamic and the relationship between the, the various foxes, between Luke and Tam and Tammy, I think there is strain there between Lucius and his wife. I think that there were some interesting things that were hinted at in Future State. So I thought that the foundation was there. Uh, having said that, I do think this this does miss the mark a little bit. I... I, I like the art. Uh, I, I don't mind the art here. I don't, I don't, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you. I actually think it's nice and clean and it works well. There, there is, uh, I agree with you. There's a fan. I, I, I love the art with bat, with the, with the bat move, with, uh, Jace 
in the bat suit walking through the smoke uh, at the rally or at the protest. You know, it's it's not bad. I I can. This isn't. I won't say this is a bad. Uh, it's because we still have Bruce Wayne. I'm still beholden to Bruce Wayne. Uh, one narrative. One way that this narratively misses the mark, unfortunately, is that. Jace repeatedly says in here, and more than one, and he said it in Second Son too, he's talking about he's got to find his own mark. He's got to make his own mark. And how are you making your own mark if you're just becoming Batman? Like, even within the narrative itself, and and you, and you touched upon this about, look, if you're going to be a new character, well, then be a new character. Why be Batman? And, of course, we all know that, look, you want to create a new character and you want to give him a boost and, you know, and so, you know, give them the Batman tech. And so you want to create a way to do that in order to, you know, diversify the Bat family and everything. And I actually like that aspect of it. Uh, however, unfortunately, uh, I do think that John Ridley's timing on this, it's, as you said, it's not entirely his fault. But I do think that maybe his story is maybe getting a little bit too harshly judged by some. Uh, because it, I don't think it's that bad a story. I, I think the characterization of Rene Montoya is pretty good. I think the dynamics between him and his family is it, it is compelling. If you're comp- if, but it's got no attention. Second Sons was digital first. Digi- I'm, I'm sure second second Batman Second Sign has barely sold. Uh, they're trying to promote this. This this is not getting the promotion that it, it probably needs. And quite frankly, now I think it's being largely ignored by DC moving forward even though they're putting it in a free comic book day, we'll see where this goes because even in Batman future state, well, I guess we got, I guess he's there, but his future state is going to be temporary. It's going to be leaving us. So it's going to be, um, I mean, the jury's still out in this. This is only the first issue. We'll see how it ends up turning out. Uh, But um, my fingers are crossed that we'll, maybe we'll get uh, a more interesting Batman out of this. Uh, We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it's too bad. John really deserved better, honestly. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Pennyworth number one is uh, one of 12, I believe. Um, one of seven. One of seven, sorry. Uh, yeah, so this is sort of based on the, the TV show, um, which stars Jack Bannon, who I met at San Diego Comic-Con a couple of years ago. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and he's a very, very nice guy, talented actor. And... Uh, yeah, it's basically Alfred before he was the butler for the Wayne family when he still was working for MI5, secret agent. So it's uh, written by Scott Brian Wilson. The art is by Juan Gideon. Colors by John Roche. Letters by AW's DC Hopkins. First, I want to say the art is pretty solid from Juan Gideon. Uh, I've only seen his work previously on Aftershock titles where it was much, much more abstract uh, so I was pretty impressed with uh, his storytelling here and the detail he puts into uh, his art. I uh, didn't know that he had this style because, uh, as I said, the previous style that I've seen from him uh, was uh, was much different. So uh, if you if you like basically a James Bond type spy story, you'll like this. That's basically what it is. It's it's Alfred as James Bond um, traveling around the world. Take, undertaking these covert uh, undercover missions where he's got to pretend to be a Frenchman or he's got to pretend to be a Russian. Um, and it's interspersed with uh, a story that's going on in the present day where Alfred has been captured uh, and thinks that he, he has a friend, backup buddy, coming to rescue him. But unbeknownst to Alfred, his buddy's been captured too, and his buddy thinks Alfred's coming to rescue him. So who has captured them and why? 
as part of uh, the bigger mystery. Um, and I imagine it must have to do with this mission that Alfred's on in uh, up in the Arctic uh, from you know way back in his younger days, where he discovered the Russians were creating super soldiers and uh, and how that might play out or tie in to the story that's being told. I guess we'll have to wait and see. If I had any complaint about the uh, the issue, it's very dialogue heavy, very expositional with Alfred kind of narrating the story for us. But there's times where we get some pretty big dialogue boxes and I could see why some people might be turned off by just the sheer amount of words that are on the page. I'm not familiar with this, this writer, um, Scott Brian Wilson. I don't know. Maybe he, he works on the TV show. He's used to, you know, working on the script where you can put in a lot of language. So, uh, it, and it, I, I didn't mind it, but I could see why some people might be that. That's just too many words. Um, there's also some Morse code in the nar uh, narrative boxes. I didn't bother to uh, decode any of it, but it's there if you're curious. Uh, and I don't know what that might add to the story. You didn't happen to decode no. the Morse code, did you, Did you, Rocky? Uh, no, I, I, I did not, no. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I thought it was I thought it was okay. I think if you're a fan of the show, you'll probably enjoy this. Or if you're a big Alfred fan and haven't read stories of him from you know previous to him being the, the butler for the Wayne family, you you might find it interesting. Uh, but yeah, what do you think, Rocky? Any any thoughts on this? Uh, I I really enjoyed this. I, I think that this is frankly this is what in my view what the expanded infinite frontier of the DC universe ought to be. In other words, this is like an it's like a glorified Elseworlds tale. Like this is not necessarily the Alfred origin for the main mainstream Alfred, who is of course dead in the mainstream DC universe. That might change uh, after the next crisis that we got coming up in I don't know next summer or whatever it might be from DC. But I I really like I've always been fascinated about Alfred Pennyworth's history, and that's why I really love the show. I I I watch the show religiously. It's not it's got its misses, but. I love the fact that Alfred, you know, you know, he, he, there was before, I mean, he knew the, you know, the early years when Alfred worked for MI5 and he was a, like a, he was like a, a spy and, and he, he was involved in World War II and, and, and who knows all these other agencies he was involved with and all the stuff that he did before he became the Wayne's Butler. And interestingly enough, now, this isn't addressed here, but this is one of those early adventures that I, I love the linkages between who he was in the past because he, he was so good at what he did in the past. And, of course, he's still having adventures in the present, even as a butler. And, of course, God, God, help, any, God help the people that don't realize that this so-called, you know, former spy, now he's just a useless butler. They have no idea that, yeah, he's also butler to uh, Bruce Wayne, who happens to be Batman. Uh, not that I expect Batman to appear in this comic, but who knows if if we're getting shots of uh, is Batman going to show up in, in in Pennyworth? Hey, wouldn't that be interesting if he shows up in the comic book, even though he may not show up in the show? But uh, in terms of the story here, I like this. This is exactly what this reminds me. I'm I'm really enjoying reading Dynamite's uh, James Bond uh, series. It's always written by different writers. It's always really just very good, different types of stories. Good old James Bond. And this is right up that alley. This could this could be easily a James Bond uh, tale, and the juxtaposition between the time periods it just works so well. And I think this is a nice uh, this is a nice uh, I guess uh, 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 
what's I'm trying to think of the right, my words fail me right now, but it's it, it, this this is a nice read along to to the to the actual series. I think this enhances the show and uh, it's it's nice to see. They should have this as a free comic book day too. I think. Yeah, that wouldn't be a bad idea. Yeah, like a companion piece to the series. Yeah, why not? To the TV series, yeah. Yep, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. It definitely has that James Bond feel. I, I have I stopped reading the, the Dynamite James Bond book. I was really enjoying it, but I stopped reading it because the whole Dynamite associating with people that I don't support. I can no longer support Dynamite, but... Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, let's move on to next issue that we're going to talk about. Detective Comics number 1041, The Jury, Part 1. Mariko Tamaki, writer. Dan Mora, artist. Jordi Belair on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Uh, wow. So I I, I really enjoy it. It, it. It's funny, you know, it, this is a new new story arc that's starting up, but it, it sort of continues the same old story arc that they were talking about before. You know, it's still yeah, it vile. Like a new one. Yeah, yeah, it's still Hugh Vile, it's still the Parasite, it's still Mayor Nakano being manipulated behind the scenes, uh, it's still Bruce Wayne with uh, without resources, which you know I mentioned before. This is really the first time where we start to see it it affect, right? Like James, it was James Tynan's idea to take all the resources away from Bruce Wayne, and yet in the pages of Batman, it hasn't really affected him. But at least Mariko Tamaki is is showing the effects. Like he had his house blown up. There's been bombs going off in the sewers, so now his micro caves have been compromised, and he's struggling even to contact Oracle because his phone doesn't have any charge. Right, he can't turn his phone on. Like we can all relate to that at a con, uh, and just not enough juice in your phone, and you're constantly worried about when it's going to die. Um, so all that just you know, fi- finally somebody's acknowledging that Bruce has to go to a coffee shop to charge his phone so he can call Oracle and. Uh, but again, even even though that's the case, he uh, he is able to sort of re resupply, I guess you'd say, because he calls Barbara, he calls Oracle, and she says, "Oh, well, you actually do have some gear that's stored, you know, in this uh, at the docks at this old stash, and I'll send you the coordinates." Which is kind of cool because when he when he does get that gear, it turns out that it's the old gray and blue costume with the bright yellow utility belt and the bright yellow oval. So I don't know if this was just the Batman editorial's idea to to bring in some nostalgia to go back to a you know a different a different look for Batman, uh, a look from it looks the past. Good. It looks good. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> it definitely was a blast from the past, and that that full page spread from Dan Mora, that splash page where he's, you know, standing there. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll, you'll know what we're talking about. It looks, it looks great, man. It, like, it oh, reminds yeah, me of that Jim Lee cover the, of the, the second printing of uh, Batman 608. With, with yeah. Hush which is so interesting because the, it was Jim Lee and Hush that sort of brought that sort of monotone look to Batman with the black cowl. And, you know, he no longer really had the, didn't have the underwear on the outside, didn't have the yellow utility belt, didn't have the yellow oval on his chest. Uh, so it's interesting that, yeah, this is definitely in, sort of inspired by that. It's a classic Batman pose, but it's definitely showing, you know, the old school look of uh, of Batman. And then he does go and confront Roland Worth and the Penguin and this group that has come together called the Jury, who's basically, and and making no sense whatsoever, condemning Batman and condemning Bruce Wayne for the death of, 
uh, of Sarah Worth, right? And we know it doesn't make any logical sense, but they're criminals and, and Worth has made up his mind and he wants to destroy Bruce Wayne and he wants to destroy Batman. It doesn't matter. He can't stop for two seconds to think about. It doesn't make sense. Um, and Batman, you know, he's, he's a detective. He has uh, a healthy respect for logic. Uh, when he tries to appeal to, to their logic, of course, that, that fails. Um, but despite Hugh Vile being alive still and, uh, still being infected with the parasite, he really doesn't have any agency in the story anymore. I sort of feel like his story's over. Um, and instead he's just going to be another pawn to be manipulated by this, this jury, by the penguin who really is the one pulling the strings here. Really the one who's, who's not only weaponizing the parasite that Hugh Vile is infected with, but also weaponizing sort of the, I'll call it the brainless desire for revenge that Roland Worth is exhibiting because he's, Roland Worth, and we've talked about this before. I I was talking about how I didn't really care for him as a character because he's so he just comes across as so dumb, honestly. Like for for lack of a better term. Um, and you you Rocky were like, well, you know, you can see it. He's overcome with grief. He's overcome with a desire for revenge. You know, he he must he's smarter than is being shown here because he would have to have been in order to rise to the you know level of kind of criminal. Um, crime lord or whatever you want to call it that he is and tr- with all the corruption and construction and whatnot. Um, and he wouldn't have been able to amass that power without some level of intelligence or at least like street smarts or cunning. Um, but all that's kind of gone out the window. Um, and, and the penguin is taking advantage of that. I still don't care for the guys as a character because I don't care what your reason is. Um, anybody who's, who's, acting as stupidly as he is, I'm just not going to have respect for as a character. I I just, I have way too much of a healthy respect for logic. You know, if you take two seconds worth to put aside emotion and think logically, you'd realize how stupid you're being, but that wouldn't fit Tamaki's uh, narrative. Right. But really this, this story has become all about the penguin. So I guess in a way it's good that we're starting a new arc um, because Tamaki is, is, elevating the penguin back to a level I think he should have been. I was never a fan of him as just sort of a corrupt casino owner. I, I like him much more malevolent, much more dangerous. And he clearly is taking advantage of worth and worth's um, desire for revenge and his, um, his kind of throwing logic out the window. Penguin's definitely weaponizing the parasite and Hugh vile. And we see that this is where Batman gets infected. And we saw last week, I think it was last week. It might have been two weeks ago, actually, now that I think about it, in the Secret Files um, Huntress uh, book where Huntress sensed that Batman was infected. Well, we see that happen here. And we see Huntress, you know, repeated that scene, Huntress telling Oracle, hey, Batman's infected. I got to go save him. So, yeah, I thought this was, this was good. I, I had sort of been kind of losing interest in the, the Hugh Vile storyline. Um, I just didn't really care for him as a, a character that much because I don't think he stands on his own. So I think what Tamaki is doing and uh, we're putting him as a tool that the penguin is, is going to weaponize, I think works much better for Hugh Vile as, as a character. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I like what she's doing and I think it's, um, I think it's interesting. And I love the fact that it's the throwback costume um, and what's going to happen with, an infected Batman is interesting. Um, I guess the Huntress is going to play a pretty big role here going forward. I guess we'll see. 
Yeah, I what I uh, what I find fascinating about this storyline is that uh, this is all a lot of this in some ways originated with Penguin's own sense of uh, lack of self-worth, you know, uh, Penguin's own ego, you know, Penguin was sort of like he was in large, I mean, the Penguin was kind of a joke. He was made a mockery of in the pages of Catwoman, Father Valley embarrassed the Penguin, even though the Penguin had hired Father Valley to take out Catwoman. The Penguin is feeling, a, yeah, after Joker War, Penguin, uh, I, I feel he feels like a small fry. He needs to make a name for himself and, and I think I recall one time, I think it was it was Miss uh, Worth, uh, the, the, the crime boss Worth sort of, you know, insulted the Penguin. And now the Penguin is easily manipulating Worth to get revenge on Batman. And what's interesting with Vile, using Vile, is the Penguin, neither Penguin nor Worth know that the hunt, that, that whoever gets infected, the Vile can see through those who he infects. But so can the Huntress. That's what makes this so fascinating. That's why I really like this. I, I, I want to give credit to Marika Tamaki, the writer here. This is very fascinating because now that Batman is infected with this virus, he can, in a sense, maybe be controlled by vile. But what's interesting now is hunters can also see through Batman's eyes. And who says that vile is because vile now can, in a sense, has some control over Batman. So who says because vile has been manipulated by the penguin? And he's being tortured and manipulated by the penguin because he was, you know, he was forcibly taken and his his own blood was forcibly taken from him and and shot at in, in Batman's body. So who's to say Vile is going to even cooperate here? So this is going to be very interesting to see where this is moving forward in terms of how this is going to resolve, uh, because um, it, it's interesting. I you know, again, the jury aspect of it is definitely, definitely a joke. I mean, this is this. I don't. I thought it, I don't know if that's really an you know kind of an odd name for this uh, particular story arc I think but I uh because I think that <laughs> I think it's a <laughs> it's not going to be a hung jury that, <laughs> given who's making it up but in any event it's going to be really uh, interesting to see Batman Batman's been through a lot he's been through he's got a, a scarecrow toxin in, in the pages of detective comics he's fighting and now he's fighting this Hugh vile virus I mean Batman is a walk, walking pharmaceutical uh, uh, pharmacy at this rate it's it's incredible that he continues to survive but in any event this was definitely more fun it was uh it, it, it was a fun read and I'm actually really curious to see how this is going to resolve now that we got the huntress and vile seeing through the eyes of Batman as he's becoming this the next episode, the next part two of the jury's call is going to be the rage of the bat. Yeah, we do have a backup as well. It's Deb Donovan in what the bleep is task force Z from writer, Matthew Rosenberg, Derek Robertson is the artist, Diego Rodriguez on colors and Rob Lee on letters. Deb Donovan has played a little bit of a supporting role in Tamaki's uh, detective run so far. Uh, and how this ties in with Jason Todd and Red Hood, like there, there are there are changes coming to Red Hood, and we're going to talk about it more when we get to the Batman Urban Legends uh, story that that finishes up with Cheer Part Six. But um, like, what the heck is going on? Uh, Matthew Rosenberg writing a lot of Batman stuff uh, over at DC, specifically with Red Hood and hints of the Wildcats coming back, and he's got uh, another. Wildcats character in Batman Urban Legends that he does a one-shot story for uh, this week as well. I, I, I'm just not sure what's going on, but Matthew Rosenberg, I'm all I'm all in for it. I, I like what he's doing here. 
Um, and if somebody's going to continue the the evolution of Jason Todd, if it's not Chip Zdarsky, then then I'm all in on on Matthew Rosenberg. So I like this story. Um, how does it tie in? Like, is Task Force Z? Because I thought that the Get Joker was not in canon, even as much as I would like it to be if it means Amanda Waller goes away. Um, and we obviously know Jason Todd is there in that story, leading what I think is referred to as Task Force X. It's the Suicide Squad. I mean, it's Suicide Squad Get Joker. Task Force Z is obviously not Task Force X. Task Force X is Suicide Squad. So, you know, like the title says, what the bleep is Task Force Z? Um yeah, it's well, a lot ta- of mystery. Task, just to be clear, ta- Task Force Z, Force Z is going to be a story in continuity. Get Joker's not in continuity. Right, but my, my point being, they're changing around Jason Todd. And again, we'll talk about it when we get to Urban Legends. They're making some changes to the character. Um, but I just find it interesting that even though they're doing that Get Joker Black Label, which is supposedly out of continuity, we're, we're going to get a Task Force Z led by Jason Todd. Like, I... I'm just not sure what's going on. It's, but I find it interesting. I'm intrigued. So I, I like this story. I'm not a big fan of, of this Deb Donovan character. She seems for a reporter uh, who's been around in Gotham city. She seems a little, um, I don't want to say arrogant, but I, I feel like she should, she doesn't seem to take things seriously enough. Like, you know, her life is threatened and she just kind of blows it off. Um, so I don't know. I just feel like if she's been around Gotham and Batman for as long as supposedly she has, she should she should be taking things a little more seriously. And clearly she's scared in a way. That's uh, indicated by her conversation with Vicki Vale. But at the same time, she doesn't want to give up. I, I don't know. I just her character's not ringing true to me a hundred percent yet. Um, but I did really like the characterization of Vicki Vale that. Um, that Matthew Rosenberg gives us. So jury's still out on this uh, in terms of, you know, am I going to like it or not? But like I said, I'm, I am very intrigued. So uh, what do you think of this one, Rocky? Yeah, it's again, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued too. I, this task uh, force Z Z I I'm looking forward to it. I, I actually, this Deb Donovan, you know, it's interesting. You got this attractive, go-getting Lois Lane in Metropolis. Who do you have in uh, Gotham City? Well, I always thought we had Vicky Vale. But, you know, does that really make sense? I mean, Gotham City probably, it's probably more appropriate that we have a, a Deb Donovan type than a Vicky Vale. Gotham City is different. It's darker. It's, it's you know, even this Deb Donovan, she appears to even be somewhat of a, an alcoholic, perhaps, drinks too much. She's she's almost like the Harvey Bullock of... Uh, <laughs> of the of reporters and and I think I I kind of I I I find her annoying in all the right ways. So I actually I'd like I like to see more of her. I even liked her attitude when she was in the hospital when she cuz she was a patient beside the huntress cuz she was another victim of the of of Hugh Vile and uh, you know she she was she had some she's good for those caustic sarcastic remarks and maybe a little bit tropey and a little bit uh, cliche but it's it's nice to see she's not she's she's off the beaten path. If you were to tell me that you this was gonna this story was gonna start with a reporter from Gotham City, I would have guessed Vicky Vale. But Ma- uh, Matthew Rosenberg here, along with I'm assuming Tinian, because they're both working on that Task Force Z story. I think they're going against the grain here, and I think this Deb Donovan might be might end up being a character that we might end up uh, either loving to hate 
or just plain uh, liking period. So overall, I like this. This whets the appetite for ta Task Force Z. And I, you know, this is, th this is one of those p potential hidden gems here. My fingers are crossed. Like, this puts a smile on my face, man. I, I, in Tinny and I trust, uh, maybe less so you, but uh, I, I'm, I'm happy with this. I, I like to see where this is going. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but I, I love the fact that Matthew Rosenberg's writing more DC stuff. I don't think he's doing much at Marvel these days. So I'm, I'm happy that Marvel let him go and DC's picking him up because uh, I think he's doing a great job. Obviously, we loved his grifter story. So, yeah. uh, all right. So speaking of Batman, and this is one a lot of people are anticipating. Batman 89, number one, chapter one. Sam Hamm is the writer. Joe Quinones is the artist. Leonardo Ito handles the colors. Clayton Cowell does letters. There's a, a really cool Jerry Ordway variant cover. Now, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, obviously, this is in the world of Batman 89, the, the movie starring Michael Keaton uh, by, uh, oh, my God, I'm drawing a blank, uh, Tim Burton. Um, okay. And, and I, obviously, I remember when that movie came and the Batman merchandise and t-shirts and it was a crazy time and that that's really when batman overtook superman as the most popular character and has been ever since now all that being said i wasn't and still am not and i know this is sacrilege in some corners i i'm not a big fan of that movie did i watch it a hundred times yes but it was because there was no other batman movie really other than the adam west 1966 batman which Obviously, this was better, but I'm just not a fan of Tim Burton, and I wasn't a fan and still am not a fan of Michael Keaton's version of Batman. Michael Keaton, to me, was like Mr. Mom. You know, I, I just didn't see it, and I still still don't to this day. And I know, again, it's sacrilege to some people. They think Michael Keaton's the best Batman and and whatever. So I'm, I'm not 100% clear if this happens after the second Tim Burton movie or it's after the first one with Joker or if it's after Batman Returns with Danny DeVito's Penguin and uh, and Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. So I know I'm not the target audience for this because I'm not a, a huge fan of those movies. So that being said, I think the Joe Quinones art is great because we have Harvey Dent, which, who was played by Billy D. Williams in the movies, and he looks very much like Billy D. Williams. We also get somebody who wasn't introduced in the movies, and that's Barbara Gordon, who's actually engaged to Billy D. Williams in uh, this story. So... It definitely has a feel, the same feel that the movies did. So I think if you're a fan of the movies, you're going to like it. And if you're not a fan of the movies, you'd be kind of like me and be like, eh, you know, it's it's okay. The story's interesting enough. Um, but again, I know I'm not the, the target audience for that. But for those that love that era of Batman, I think they'll be probably in, really enjoying this. For me, it was just okay. Um, probably the best part about it was the... Uh, introduction of Barbara Gordon. Um, and I, I'm not sure what actress Joe Quinones is, is basing her on, to be honest with you, but there is a, uh, a variant cover uh, by Taryn Clark that he must be basing her on somebody because it's kind of a photorealistic cover. It looks like what the movie poster would have looked like maybe if there, we ever got this as a, a movie and she gotta be, he's gotta be basing her on somebody real, but yeah. Anyway, I, I just thought it was okay. And again, I'm not the biggest Batman 89 fan. So my favorite movie Batman at this point is probably Ben Affleck, even though we haven't gotten a a, um, a version of him in his own solo movie. P previous to that, it was probably 
um, Christian Bale and Batman Begins, but that trilogy got worse as it went on. Uh, I think the Dark Knight with Heath Ledger Joker is worse than Batman Begins, and then the third movie um, with the uh, Bane by by Tom Hardy that sounds like Sean Connery is is even worse than the second movie. And I know I'm in the minority. I know there are some people that think that second movie is like the greatest thing Batman movie ever. And Heath Ledger's the greatest Joker ever, but I, I always disliked it. And the third movie, I, I can't even watch. It's so bad. Um, but again, I know I'm in the minority, so I guess we'll see how the, the newest Batman movie plays. But in the meantime, we have the continuation of Batman 89 here and I imagine it's going to sell pretty well. But uh, what were your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Uh, I could very easily. Uh, I remember Batman '89, uh, the, the the Michael Keaton movie, very fondly. He's not my favorite Batman, but at the time, I was very impressed. I, Michael Keaton, he convinced me. He he pulled it off very well. I really like this. I could easily imagine the world as I read this. I could imagine that Tim Burton world, and I could, you know, I was I was actually quite impressed with the way that they with with Harvey Dent in particular, with Billy D. Williams, how he's he's clearly he's corrupt, and uh, even his origins of how he's you know he even he even asked Barbara to flip the coin to decide whether or not you know she could decide whether or not to marry him by flipping the coin because he's always lucky, you know. And uh, his father even told him, you know, you, you always flipped a coin when you were younger and you didn't you always knew where that where that where that coin was going to land even before you flipped it. And he's uh, th- this is a Harvey Dent that's extremely confident and you could tell he's always been successful and he's all he always knew which way the coin would flop. And of course, he even knows when he he decides, you know, he lets a you know, he flips the coin to decide whether or not he's going to uh, uh, kill a, a criminal uh that he chases down and of course he, he ends up killing him. So right away, you know that this is a badass uh, crown prosecutor. Uh, and you also know that, you know, Barbara Gordon is his confidant, her, his lover, his uh, fiance. And, and he's got a lot of power and he thinks that Batman's the problem. And right away, you know, th- it really sets up, it really sets up the stakes here because then he, he confronts, of course, he doesn't know Bruce Wayne is Batman, but Bruce Wayne is the billionaire. And so, Bill, uh, Harvey Dent approaches Bruce Wayne and asks him to uh, for funding uh, in order to you know to su- support him uh, in order to you know to deal with uh, you know vigilantes and 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 go- and be on his side <laughs> uh, against whatever forces he might be up against when he tries to take down Gordon because he he doesn't Harvey Dent just does not like the fact that Gordon seems to be so close to Batman because he thinks Batman's part of the problem. And um, it's 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 actually very good. Now, for us longtime Batman fans, this is kind of a story that we've gotten multiple hundreds of variations on over the years. But what makes this different is the fact that is the is what's going on in the back of my mind as I'm reading it. It reminds me of the movie, and so it has that little bit of extra bit of nuance in the back of my mind as I read it. And when I see the old when I see the classic Alfred from the 89 film and, and of course the art here, the artist has a pretty good job of, of bringing me into that world. So this, again, uh, I'm going to be picking this up. This actually makes, puts a smile on my face and uh, I guess I'm old enough. I have that nice nostalgic feel when I read it. So I, this is, this is an, I feel that this was catering a little bit to my, my old school sensibilities. So I'm going to pick it up. Yeah, and again, I think fans uh, of the movie are going to really enjoy this because it does have that the 
it, it captures that feel of that that film world, uh, that film universe very well, like Rocky said. All right, we're not done talking about Batman stuff yet, not by a long shot. Uh, up next, The Joker, number six, written by James Tynan. Guillaume March is the artist. Arif Prianto on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. And then we have a punchline backup that continues. Punchline chapter six, written by Sam Johns and James Tynan. Art and colors by Sweeney Boo. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Um, now, last issue, we kind of had a an interlude, I guess I'll call it, with uh, the telling the story of the Joker's first night in Arkham Asylum. Um, and now we're getting back to the main story with Gordon um, searching around for the Joker. So what do you think of this one, Rocky? Well, uh, I liked it. And I, I do think that uh, uh, I actually thought that one of the criticisms of issue five, the last issue of Joker, was that a lot of people were wondering, you know, that this, it was too much of a, it seemed like to be a side issue it was focusing on Commissioner Gordon's past, focusing on the fact that he worked too hard and he was a bad husband, but a good commissioner. And that, you know, Commissioner Gordon was obsessed with the Joker even early in his career, et cetera, et cetera. But I said then, and I'm going to say now, and I think my, my theory is right, is that la- the, 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 mo- the most important thing to get out of it, the previous issue, issue five, was the, was the setup of the history between the Joker and the Samson family. And I think this is starting to bear fruit. In this issue here, we start off uh, with a flashback to Hooper County, Texas, 50 years ago in the early days of the Samson family, where it's, a, it's, it's clear right off the bat that young, it's young Billy Samson and his brother uh, who are chasing down this girl with intentions of eating her. This is a Samson family or a sick, disgusting family. They're a cat- they eat people and they murder people. They hunt them down. And that's exactly what... Uh, Billy Sampson and his brother are doing here in this opening sequence. Now, this is a girl who happens to get away. She escapes. And as she's escaping, uh, uh, the, the, the Sampson brothers happen to stumble upon <laughs> Texas tea. You know, they find oil literally, literally on their land. And it, and it makes the Sampson family rich. But it's because- a scene right out of Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Texas tea. Yes. And, uh, but this girl escaped, and uh, of course they had all this money then because they they had gold on their land. But they needed a scapegoat, so the Samson family used their their sort of retarded. I mean, Billy Samson was kind of the slow, bigger, fat, uh, overweight, sort of slower, dim-witted Samson, and so he sort of took the fall for the Samson family, which harkens back to what the the head of the Samson family stated in 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 previous uh, in previous issues about how that's why they they want to protect Billy in Arkham Asylum that's why they paid for his own ex, his own room and they they wanted him to be protected because Billy Sampson took the bullet for them because otherwise the whole family could have potentially been convicted and they wouldn't have been able because this was just at the early stages of them becoming really rich having discovered oil so Billy Sampson being in Arkham Asylum basically took the you know took the fall for them and it's interesting because you, uh, I, I think Tinian here does a good job of showing it through newspaper articles how the Samson family found millions in their own backyard. Massacre victim recants, she recanted her testimony, and Billy the brute Samson is transferred to Arkham Asylum. She points the finger at the, at the youngest Samson as opposed to the ones that were really behind it. And it's reasonable to assume, I'm guessing here, because this is not in here in the narrative, I'm guessing that it might very well be that Billy Sampson might be 
the one who was the most kind to her, even though he was chasing her down. You just don't know. There's more to this story. And I say again, where I think this is going to go is that I think that the Joker, I think that, I think Billy, <laughs> I think the Joker maybe befriended Billy Sampson in Arkham. And I think that this is heading to us. This is going to head to some sort of climax where Billy Sampson is going to betray his own family uh, at the end of the day. And I, I think things are really getting interesting here. And, and I, uh, you know, the, whoever did, whoever did the attack on, on Arkham on a day that, that set off all these chains of event and all the bat books, the Joker insists that it wasn't him. And it might very well have been the Joker, but it doesn't appear to be. The Joker doesn't really care that people think he did it or not because he's the Joker and he's always 10 steps ahead of everybody else. But whoever did do it did did really scar up Billy's face. And so they're fixing the face. And But the reality is, is that uh, the, the head of the Samson family wants revenge on the Joker. And it uh, it's interesting. And I, I, I'm not sure, but there's this Cressida character, Cressida character that the character that has hired uh, Commissioner Gordon to, or hired Jim Gordon, he's not commissioner, sorry, he hired, he hired Jim Gordon, paying him $25 million to find the Joker. I'm not sure if that maybe was that really the Sims, uh, the Samson family that are hiring him. I don't think so. Uh, these mis these mysterious people, have, you know, a group of people have hired the Jim Gordon to find the, find the Joker. But unfortunately, the Joker... Uh, you know, Jim Gordon wakes up, he, the trail on the Joker's gone cold. And so through a lot of this issue, there's a lot of narration here. There's a lot of, uh, it follows Jim Gordon as he goes through Paris and he's, he's getting beat up from various gangs and he's, he's, he's very, he's very disappointed. The trail's going cold. He talks to Oracle or his daughter, Barbara tells him, look, use your credit card. I mean, they give you a credit card with $25 million on it. You might as well use it. Put yourself up in a nice hotel the best you can. You might as well do that. And that's what he did. But Jim is getting, uh, Gordon is getting increasingly frustrated because things aren't going according to uh, uh, plan. He seems to be hitting dead end after dead end. And even Oracle herself is uh, concerned because she's, uh, a lot of her, a lot of her abilities have been uh, 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 essentially compromised and she's still in the process of hacking into various sims, uh, various computer systems around the globe and she's feeding him information about this new female uh, Bane vengeance her name is vengeance uh, the daughter of Bane we met her last issue and and now we've got this new person on the field this this Billy Samson and I'm not sure if of what if, I don't know sure what they're going to call him if he's going to actually end up with a name but the stakes here are really getting raised and um Gordon is uh, Gordon calls in Harvey Bullock, calls in some favors. He hires Harvey Bullock to do some investigating because he can pay Harvey whatever he wants, double his usual rates to do some investigating, check out some leads back leads back in Gotham. Uh, but not until Gordon, unfortunately, is picked up by Interpol at the end of the issue and he's arrested because the Joker planted Gordon's fingerprints uh, at a crime scene in uh, Montmartre. Where, uh, which was a crime scene that took place in a previous issue, and, and so the Joker is clearly playing playing with Gordon and is having fun doing it. The head of Interpol here, seeing she, this provocative uh, older woman, seems to 
believe that Gordon is innocent and that he's being played. And meanwhile, there's the Joker looking down on them, uh, sort of, uh, you know, looking like he's he knows exactly what's going on. So, again, I, I really like Tinian. This is building to something. I really think this is building to something. And I think the clues are there. I think the clues were there last issue. I think there's more clues this issue. This Billy Sampson thing is such a, I think this is such a great subplot that I think is going to be bleeding into the main one. I think Joker knows exactly what he's doing. I think, I think the, the Joker has a relationship with Billy Sampson. He knows he's playing Billy Sampson and the Sampson family. He's, he's stringing them along. And I think that the Samson family are going to get their comeuppance with the Joker by the end. And all this is going to be carefully uh, set up. So I'm having a great time with this narrative. Absolutely. I'm, I'm loving this. And Gillian March, the art, the art continues to be great. Arif Prianto on the colors. Great all around. Tom Napolitano on the letters. I'm enjoying this, man. I, I give this a, if I, I'd give this a solid eight and a half out of 10. Yeah, it is a real good story, but. Uh, I think you have one one mistake in your 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 reading of the story. So Billy Sampson is dead, is my understanding, and that's why the that's why the Sampson family is after the Joker so strongly. Because yeah, like you said, um, Billy Sampson was the fall guy, the the young, uh, yeah. you know, clearly learning impaired uh, member of the the Sampson family who basically they they stuck in Arkham. And then paid to have a you know giant wing, and he got the best care and everything because they they sacrificed him, they sacrificed him so they could be rich, so they didn't have to go on the run when that girl escaped. But well, who is know, that it was, guy? It, it who was, is that so guy was, with the was, mask? So it was fifty years ago that all that happened. So, um, the uh, the older the the head of the Samson family now, the old guy that we see in the story, is uh, is the young guy carrying the shotgun in the early part of the story. Sawyer, Sawyer Samson, um, who, who was the one that found the oil and, and ultimately, you know, made the choice to sacrifice Billy and have him transferred to Arkham Asylum. Apparently, and, and there must be another Samson uh, family member that we've, that we've never met. I'm going to assume it's a sister um, just for the sake of that, usually what they would do, right? And, and that sister or, or un, uh, you know, unseen sister or brother, if it happens to be, must be the the mother or father of uh, of the other two Samsons, the ones that went and attacked the Joker in issue four, where we saw um, we saw the the Joker set off the Joker gas that incapacitated both Jim Gordon as well as uh, Buddy. I think his name is Buddy Sawyer. Uh, I don't know if we've ever been told the girl, his sister's uh, name with the pink hair. So if you remember that scene around the campfire on the airfield at the end of issue four, where the Joker was sewing um, Buddy's mouth shut and then, you know, wrapped the the cord around him and and left him pretty messed up. So even in this issue, the girl even says the doctor's doing what he can. Uncle Sawyer, you know, talking to the guy that found the oil, but the clown messed up Buddy's face uh, real good. So it's Buddy, not Billy, Buddy Sawyer. Uh, the the next generation, along with this girl with the pink hair, who uh, have apparently been training all their lives to be nefarious, be you know, go out and capture people to eat. I got you know, yeah. you don't know, but <laughs> yeah. but what we do know is 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 that, and I think we were told in the first or second issue that um, that Buddy 
or, or Billy rather, Billy Sampson was killed on A Day, and that's right. the whole and, reason. And I think family. you're right, and and I uh, that is right, and I and I said last issue that my theory is is that he's still alive. I think that I think he's still alive, and and, and that might be crazy, but I think the Joker's kept him alive because there's a number of people that they thought were dead that were really alive that in, in when Arkham was attacked there. From yeah, it's entirely possible that he's still alive, but if he is, I mean, Joker didn't have anything to do with a day, so that's why I kind of wonder how could he still. But but maybe he could still be alive. But even if he is alive, he's got to be. He might not be quite as old as Sawyer. But he's got to be pretty old because, you know, he's at least in his 20s at the beginning yeah. of the story. That was, again, 50 years ago. It says but, right there. But the what's funny, uh, of, of all the inmates in Arkham Asylum, how come, how come Buddy would be the only one that's never tried to escape? He, he was the Joker's roommate for how long? I would think that if anybody would know how to escape, it would be Buddy. And anyways, I just I, I know I might be talking nonsense, but I just think that. Uh, he's been set up. I mean, his his brother Sawyer here clearly clearly set him up to take the fall for the family, and and it just seems to me to be that's uh, he must have you know if uh, I just can't believe he's dead. Like it's to me that's too convenient. But we'll we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely have to to wait and see because clearly there's uh, there's something more like you said to this this relationship between the Joker and and the Samson family as far as the. The Jim Gordon stuff, um, yeah, I mean, it's back to sort of the narrative that we were getting all along with with Jim really getting, uh, you know, as he's narrating the story, we're really getting to know Jim Gordon in, in a way that we maybe haven't before. Uh, and I, Tynan seems to have a, a real a real feel for who, who Jim Gordon is, and I, I really like that. I feel like he sort of knows Jim Gordon better than even he's he knows Bruce Wayne. At least I feel like the portrayal of Jim Gordon is feels even more authentic to me than uh, than his portrayal of of Bruce Wayne, and and that's not to say that the way he writes Bruce is bad. I just think he writes Jim like that well, and I, I really also enjoy the the way he portrays the relationship between Barbara and Jim. There's not a, there's a few things left unsaid, but there's not out and out secrets, right? That always bugs me when things happen, things go wrong in a story because people keep things from one another. I end up thinking, man, if, if you just had told the truth or you, if you just hadn't been keeping this information from them, we wouldn't have this big mess. Like I hate that as a plot device to create drama and to uh, drive the story forward. Um, if, if it's all like a misunderstanding, it feels like an episode of Three's Company to me, right? Like, oh, somebody <laughs> yeah. misunderstood something somebody said or somebody was keeping a secret or God, it's every freaking episode. And it, it just, it, it bugs me. So I'm glad that, that the relationship between Jim Gordon and Barbara Gordon is not that in the hands of James Tynan. So, yeah, I bet you guys didn't think you were going to hear a Three's Company reference when talking about Joker number six this week, but there it is. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'm enjo I'm enjoying this. Um, I agree with Rocky. This this woman who works for Interpol, she doesn't for a second think that Jim Gordon had anything to do with this private laboratory. I'm sure they're going to take him into the office of Interpol and go, okay. Gordon, we want you to work for us. <laughs> it's 100% what's going to happen. He's going to be working for himself. He's going to be working for Cressida. He's going to be working for Interpol. You know, he's going to be working all these different angles. Um, and that's where the tension is going to, going to come from. And I love the, the blurb, next, Jim fought the law. So uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to the next issue. This is not that I didn't enjoy last issue, 
Um, it definitely felt like a, an interlude, a prelude. You know, the art style was so wildly different as well. But I feel like we're back on track. And not to say that the last issue took us out, off track. It just was different. Um, and I appreciate it for what it was. I'm glad we're back to the the Jim Gordon narrated uh, issue. And, and we hardly got any Joker. So again, we're back on that track as well, which really works for me. A Joker book with uh, with hardly any Joker. I mean, he shows up kind of on the splash page, manipulating events, uh, pulling the strings. But that's my favorite kind of Joker. Behind the scenes, I don't have to hear him talk. I don't even have to see him in the book very much. That works for me. Uh, as far as the backup with the punchline story, it continues to be depressing. Um, it continues to remind me that somehow in the world that we live in now, the truth is not necessarily the truth and things can be manipulated and it just bugs me. At the end, we have uh, this guy showing Harper Rowe's brother. Um, look at here's cell phone footage of, of some random person wailing on punchline for no reason. We can't let her kill an innocent person. Like what in what world is punchline innocent? How stupid do you have to be? To see everything that went on in Joker War and be fooled into thinking Punchline is anything but a deranged psychopath, you know, and and unfortunately, uh, it's all too realistic <laughs> with the the way of the world now, uh, with people thinking that the vaccine doesn't work or causes mutations or infertility or whatever. Like, just do a little bit of research, people. The truth is out there, you know, like the X Files told us way back when. So I, I'm still not enjoying the punchline story. I don't enjoy the punchline character. And honestly, it's getting depressing. Um, let the art's okay. I think Sweeney Boo's a talented artist. It suits the, the story that they're telling. It's just not a story that I'm interested in. I, I'm so ready for this punchline backup to be done. Um, drop the book a dollar and get rid of the backup in my mind. Yeah. Or, or keep the book at this length and just give me more Jim Gordon. But I'm I'm over punchline severely over punchline, or or give me a Harper Rose story backup that doesn't have anything to do with punchline. I'd even read that, but uh, punchline holds no interest for me. So, but I know you like her a lot more than I do, Rocky. What are well, your thoughts? Well, what I've said, I I've defended the potential for for punchline uh, because I do think that there's I do think that we it's interesting to have a character that can utilize social media as a, as a weapon for very nefarious and evil purposes. Unfortunately, that's not what Tinian is doing here, even though it seems on the surface he might be, but simply having her, you know, she sets up, this was, you know, for some reason, Bluebird feels she needs to go into prison to infiltrate and get close to uh, punchline for nonsensical reasons that I just, I just don't buy into. Uh, it was, it's very forced. Uh, I don't think I really don't like the way the writers uh, Sam Johns and James Tenney in the fourth. I think I think this is a this is a significant miss. I, I don't like the way that this has progressed. Uh, punchline, you know. I also don't like the fact that that uh, where they've really done the character of Punchline a disservice in my mind is they've she's now just sort of like a Duke Ek Machina. You know, Punchline knows everything. Punchline immediately knows that Bluebird. Uh, is there to, you know, in, immediately knows that the tattoos that Bluebird has, they're fake. She immediately is 10 steps ahead of her. Why? Because she's, because she's Joker's plaything. So she just knows. She just knows. And I'm sorry, but, 
you know, if you want to build up my interest in, in punchline, she's got to have some, she's got to show some intelligence on her own. I mean, even, even Harley, who is, can be, Harley Quinn can be a crazy, uh, you know, crazy person at times, obviously psychotic, but Harley has shown her competence. She's been, you know, in stories, she can be shown to be intelligent and figure things out on her own. She might be crazy and crack a few heads while she's doing it and cracking a few jokes, but you know, it's like show, don't tell. And punchlines competence, it, we're, we're constantly told what it is. You know, you know, all of a sudden the entire prison system likes her because she's, I don't know. I, I think the Joker must have, because it didn't really make sense. I didn't really buy into it. Like that she could, you know, you know, clearly punchline bought everybody off. It was the Joker, obviously, that has the power, not punchline. Punchline has no power. She really is Joker's plaything here. And, and I guess, I guess that maybe plays into the narrative because uh, that's exactly what, uh, that's exactly what maybe Tinian wants is to emphasize that. I th- because it, it, it seems to me that Punchline's only power comes from the fact that she's Joker's plaything. The Joker makes sure she's safe in prison. The Joker makes sure she's protected. The Joker tips her off the bluebirds coming in. I mean, does Punchline have any competency on, on herself? Is she a good... A, you know, it just seems to me... Uh, I, I don't know. Um, that's why I'm a little surprised. I, I, I was hoping for a little bit more... Um, competency on the punch of punchline as opposed to she's just cocky and i don't think she's i think if you take away the joker she really is genuinely nothing and i think may, maybe that's where tinian is headed maybe when the joker's defeated and punchline's left to her own devices we'll see how useless she actually is uh but i like i'd like to see her establish some competency on her own and i'm just not seeing it or maybe i'm not seeing something in the narrative here but this i at this point i'm very very disappointed also straight up I don't like the narrative here. I don't like the story. Uh, and I just, this is, this isn't very interesting. It's, it's way too dragged on. I think it's, uh, Marco and Dolfo's art. I, I like early on it, I just didn't, it didn't work for me. I'm not even sure. Is that her art on this, on this? Oh, chapter Sweeney, two? Sweeney, Sweeney, Sweeney Boo. Boo took yeah. Over. It yeah. just, this is, this is the, this is, you know, I like Sweeney Boo. I do. I, I met her at New York comic con. I mean, you know, she signed my Captain Marvel, but this is this is not the appropriate. This is punchline. This is a Joker sidekick. She's psychotic. She kills. She's not. This is this isn't sweetness. This isn't you know roses and lollipops. You know, this is just the the wrong type of art for the wrong kind and wrong type of story. Uh, so unfortunately, it's it's a miss. It's a miss for me. All right, we're not done with Batman yet, everybody. We're up to Batman Urban Legends number six. We've got four stories. The End of Red Hood and Batman Cheer. It's part six of six from writer Chip Zdarsky. We've got Eddie Barrows with inks by Ibar Ferreira, and then Scott Eaton and Julio Ferreira with Eau Claire Albert listed as the artist. Marcus Toe handles the flashback art. Adriana Lucas on colors. Becca Carey on letters. We have a Zealot One-Shot, Blood for Blood, written by Matthew Rosenberg. Chris Spouse handles the pencils. Carl Story on inks. Pete Pan- Pantazis on colors, Josh Reed on letters. Finish up the Tim Drake storyline, Some of Our Parts, Part 3 of 3, by Megan Fitzmartin, Bellin Ortega on, uh, I guess, pencils and inks, uh, Alejandro Sanchez on colors, and Pat Brousseau on letters. And then uh, Black Canary in solo, also a one-shot. Joshua Williamson is the writer, Trevor Hairsign art, Rain Barreto on colors and Steve Wands on letters. Um, yeah, so we we get the end of the the cheer 
story that's been running since since issue one. Um, what do you think, Rocky? Again, I hinted at it earlier. There's some changes coming for Red Hood. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I sound like a broken record every time we re- review a red this Red Hood a Red Hood chapter for this cheer cheer drop story with <laughs> written scripted by Chip Sardaski, Eddie Burrows uh, leading the art uh, artistic chores. I enjoyed this man. I, this even this this character of Cheery's he's somewhat of a Joker wannabe, but. I enjoy this, and it's mostly because of the the characterization. And I I I love this issue because this you know Jason Todd ends up going and uh, he ends up getting an old Batman costume with the help of with Oracle, and he ends up he ends up saving Batman, and uh, he ends up saving Batman, uh, who is actually infected with the the, the cheer drops, and and along the way he you know again you get these. The use of the cheer drops is not only contributes to the storyline because it's the uh, because it's the actual it's the actual it's the motive behind because it's basically it's, it's this is a drug trafficker who wants to traffic this stuff this this Mister Cheer or whatever the hell his name is Cheer what's his name Cheer it's just Cheer <laughs> yeah I think so just Cheer yeah yeah but in any event uh, just just the flashbacks with. Uh, with Jason Todd, I mean, this was all about his relationship with Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne being his father figure, Batman being his father figure, and uh, when he thinks about it, what his life, what his life could have been like, and you know, it's a lot of these moments are they're they're very well done. They're touching moments, and it's Jason Todd sort of coming to terms with, uh, you know, with, with his life, and and you know how how his feelings for for Bruce Wayne. Now, you know, some people may not get behind this because good lord, you know, we talk about we have gotten a lot of Jason Todd lately. We really really have, and it's so unfortunate because I think you know, despite all the Jason Todd, we've gotten it in Get Joker, we, we Suicide Squad, Get Joker. We get it in uh, Cheer here. We get it we're getting it in in other like in other stories with Matthew Rosenberg. We we've gotten we got a Jason Todd we got a lot of Jason Todd's, even in Three Jokers. He's a character that people—he's people seem to be more fascinated with Jason Todd at times than even uh, next to Batman. It's almost Jason Todd, prob- followed by Damien, then maybe followed by Nightwing. Uh, but he's such an interesting character because of his struggle with the darkness and the fact, uh, you know, and his his relationship with Bruce Wayne, which has always been troubled. But I. What's great here is that there's there's a little bit of a redemption here for Jason Todd because he calls upon the other members of the Bat family, Batwoman, Cassandra Kane, Spoiler, Nightwing, uh, and uh, the Signal, all show up to help him against Cheer and uh, Mister Freeze, and they rescue Batman. And it's Jason Todd that rescues Batman by injecting in him uh, essentially an antidote to help him with to combat the Cheer, and. Ultimately, uh, they're successful, and there's it's a, there's a wonderful scene there where you know Batman feels very sorry. Uh, clearly, he knows he's been through quite the ringer, and you, you can tell there's some unspoken moments between Jason and, and Bruce. And um, uh, I'm I'm trying to get to the. At one point, he asked him, uh, 
somebody asks uh, Bruce, what did the gas show you? And, and he said, and he said, happiness. And, and that's exactly what it was. It, it was happiness. And Bruce, Bruce's idea of happiness is that he, he sort of remembers, he sort of re- remembers a, a different ending and uh, the ending, namely that he maybe prevented the Joker from uh, killing J- Jason Todd the first time or it, I, I wasn't quite sure how to interpret that, but it, it's, it just seemed like it was Jason Todd pulling Batman back from the edge as opposed to it's always Batman pulling Jason Todd back from the edge. And cause he, he imagines him, the Batman almost killing the Joker, but, um, there's a, again, it's a wonderful image. It all takes place in Batman's head and it, it ultimately ends with Bruce Wayne extending an all, you know, extending an olive branch to Jason Todd, inviting him to family dinner and Jason Todd giving up the guns. He was going to give up the guns. He's not going to use guns anymore. He was only using rubber bullets to begin with, but this appears to be perhaps a new Jason Todd, a new Red Hood, one that is going to embrace not using lethal force, uh, which is a decided turn from his previous iterations. So interesting. It's It shows a marked change. If this is going to stick, DC has clearly taken a different approach to Jason Todd. They're they're lightening him up a little bit. Maybe he's not going to be as dark. He's He'll still be the black sheep of the Batman family, but he will, he will no longer use... Uh, lethal force at least uh, by the looks of things but I thought this was a great this this cheer finale worked quite well I, I enjoyed it I, I really hope they sell this as a trade because so many of these stories in these in these your Batman Urban Legends it's so unfortunate that they don't have separate floppies uh, to benefit because I think that it's they're losing so many people uh, so so they're they're losing a potential audience by not having these stories individual in my mind but I enjoyed this, uh, Jace. What did uh, what did you think? Did uh, did this meet your expectations? Yeah, it's exceeded my expectations. I, you know, Chip Zdarsky, such a master at bringing emotion into the stories and and connecting with these characters. And these are characters that we we care about. You know, as much as I complain about we get too much Batman, um, this isn't a Batman story. This is a story about Batman's relationship with with Jason Todd, and you know, more than anybody. We've gotten Zadarsky has given us a, a good look into who Jason Todd is. You know, the argument can be made that Scott Lobdell was, you know, the definitive Jason Todd writer ever since the New Fifty Two started, because we had Red Hood and the Outlaws, and that went through to Rebirth, where we got it was still Red Hood and the Outlaws, but it was a you know it was a different team with Bizarro and Artemis, and then it just became Red Hood Outlaw once he shot the Penguin in the head. And at that point, you know, Bruce threw him out of Gotham City. And if you remember, uh, he was no longer allowed to wear the bat symbol, you know, and and that's where at the end of the story with with Batman giving him back his old his older costume that does have that bat symbol and and kind of the the Red Hood helmet that we're more familiar with. You know, it's it's Bruce extending that olive branch saying, you know, hey, uh, wear this if you want, like, you know, inviting him back, officially inviting him back into the family. Um, now would he have done that if Jason didn't already say, uh, I'm going to give up the guns and, uh, and it was a poignant moment when he did say he was going to give up the guns because Bruce is, you know, starting to lay on the platitudes and and I love Jason stops him. I, you know, I don't want to hear it. I'm not doing it for you. I still think there are some people that, that should die, 
but the collateral damage is not is not worth it is what he's saying so there's still a a fundamental difference in philosophy between Jason Todd and, and Bruce Wayne. And that's okay because at the end of the day, they're, they're still family. And that's sort of what this story has, has reminded us, right? Jason Todd is, is a member of, of the Bat family. But my, I found myself wondering like, so who is Red Hood without the guns? You know, every, every great piece of Red, art, Red Hood art we've seen, you know, it's always with the guns and whatnot. So what's he going to fight with? Uh, without those, I guess, you know, we'll wait and see. But it was also good to see him, like, wearing a Bat costume in this issue to go and rescue Batman. Uh, it really showed that he was part of the family with the others showing up. And as far as Bruce Wayne being shown happiness, um, so interesting because it, in a way, it makes him sad. Uh, and you got it's got to be for the reason of, he knows what could have been right. Like let's say he did a better job at being Batman and he didn't need the help. There's a scene right toward the end next to last page where Bruce is looking at the bat family, but none of them are in the costumes, you know, like the life, the life they all could have had as just normal people, as opposed to, you know, fighting crime and putting their lives on the line. Um, and that to, to me, that's what, what Bruce's happiness would be, right? Where it wasn't necessary to, to risk the lives of these people that he's come to love. So uh, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was powerful. I thought the art was very, very good. Um, you know, from the flashbacks to the, the colors by Adriana Lucas, uh, I thought it was all great. So where are we going to get more Jason Todd? I don't know. Is it going to be Matthew Rosenberg in that uh, Task Force Z story? Uh, I'd, I'd love to get more Jason Todd from Chip Zdarsky, but, uh, I guess we'll, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, yeah. next story is, is blood for blood written by the aforementioned Matthew Rosenberg pencils by Chris Sprouse. And it's basically zealot, um, who most people will know from wildcat going after Maxwell Lord. Um, and she's dressed as wonder woman for whatever reason, uh, when she goes after him and he, he always manages to, uh, slip away at the last moment and then when zealot finally corners him who comes to save the day but but wonder woman herself you know who famously snapped max lord's neck at one point and she's basically telling zealot you know you're probably right he doesn't deserve to live but um you know i'm telling you from experience you you can't you can't do something unjust you know the ends don't justify the means you can't do something unjust to and say it's in the in the um, in the interest of justice, it doesn't work like that. So, what we do see at the end is that Zealot wounds Wonder Woman, and then uh, takes a sample of her blood from from the, her sword. And maybe this was all just a big fake out because Maxwell gets away once again, and Zealot says, "That's okay. We got what we came for." Tell Marlowe I'm coming back to Gotham. So apparently, maybe, like I said, it was all just a setup and she wasn't even after Maxwell Lord, didn't really want to assassinate Maxwell Lord, but was just trying to gain a sample of Wonder Woman's blood. So I guess we'll we'll wait and see. The art is solid. Um, it's it's a pretty short story and kind of wall-to-wall -wall action. Um, but I've, I like the voice that, um, that Matthew Rosenberg gave Zealot, and I thought he wrote Wonder Woman reasonably well also. So... Yeah, I thought it was fine. Obviously yeah. sets up something more. Um, 
And, and I just can't help but think when I read this, based on the end of the Grifter story, can you go ahead, DC? Can you just announce the Matt, the Matthew Rosenberg <laughs> Wildcat story? Because it sure seems like that's yeah, the direction we're headed. That's what I want. No, for sure. I, I agree. And, and of course, we know at the end of that uh, Matthew Rosenberg uh, Grifter story, which was appropriately called The Long Con, they ended up with uh, Batman, all, all of Batman's files on, on, on all kinds of things, including all the heroes and villains, I think, in the DCU on and on his, on his bat computer, they stole that. So the Wildcats have that, and they are now in possession of Wonder Woman's DNA, Wonder Woman's blood. Uh, so that's very interesting. What are they going to be using it for? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I it's probably fair to say this is was just one long play, maybe to draw Wonder Woman out to protect Maxwell Lord. If I'm nitpicking here, one of the things that was off is that. I mean, Maxwell Lord was already in the... Uh, Marika Tamaki wrote uh, a six or seven issue long uh, Maxwell Lord story in the pages of Wonder Woman, which uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of. But I mean, Maxwell Lord... Maxwell Lord is a very powerful uh, telepath in his own right. Uh, he never used any of his powers in this entire story. And I don't know if uh, Zealot has some sort of tech tech that prevents Ma uh, Maxwell Lord from using his telepathy on Zealot, but he doesn't even try to use it which I found really odd. Uh, so I don't know why there wouldn't have been some kind of mention uh, that, you know, why there was no scene of Maxwell Lord using his own power set. So I, you know, I, I double checked through the, I don't know if there was something in the dialogue where he's reason why, you know, I don't know why he needs to hide from Zealot. He can literally mind control her unless of course she's, uh, again, she's got some some tech prohibiting that, but that doesn't seem to. End, I couldn't didn't read anything in the narrative uh, where she was. Uh, you know, I don't know why he needs to escape. Why you know he it, Maxwell Lord didn't lose his powers, so I don't know. I'm not really sure what's going on here, but uh, uh, other than that, because I think that's kind of a I think that's kind of a big miss on the on the part of this story. It's it's a nitpick, but it's kind of a big nitpick. That's not the point of this story. I know. But Maxwell Lord is more powerful than this, and he should be portrayed yeah, as such. It, it, it has it has been shown that Wonder Woman has has been able to defy his powers in in the past. Oh, certainly, and but per, not Zealot. Perhaps, well, that's all but, I'm saying. Per, but yeah, but perhaps Zealot um, as well, based on the fact that she's not, you know, from this oh, reality. Yeah, I, I gotta I, I gotta read into that. I mean, we can we yeah. can read into that. I just yeah. thought you know a little something in the in the dialogue could have easily. You know, yeah, again, right. I'm nitpicking. He, she could have said, yeah. you know, your powers won't work on me, Max, and just left yeah. it at that. And we could have, oh, okay. But we, I, I never read that. But again, that's a nitpick. But hey, man, like I love Matthew Rosenberg. I love, hey, man, with Wildcats, with I don't know what the hell they're going to do with Wonder Woman's blood and all of Batman's computer tech, computer knowledge and the Bat files. Man, clearly the Wildcats, you know, they're going to be a team to be reckoned with once they, I mean, if. I mean, wow, whatever they got planned, it must be something big. Yeah, I would argue that Wildcats has never, the characters have never been successfully integrated into the DCU. It would be nice to see if Matthew Rosenberg could do that successfully. Yeah. Make it work. Uh, all right. Next story is the end of the Tim Drake story. Um, Tim Drake, some of our parts, chapter three of three. I didn't really care for this, the way the story ended up. Um, unfortunately, Rocky was right all along. Uh, not not that they're turning Tim Drake uh, gay like originally thought, but supposedly he's going to be bisexual. 
And they're not necessarily saying that that here, it's all to be continued in Batman Urban Legends number 10, four issues from now. But it ends with Tim uh, basically agreeing to go on a date with this uh, Barnaby character. Um, and I, I don't know. I sort of have the same Bernard. You said Bernard, Barnaby. right. Yeah. Barnaby, yeah. Bernard. Bernard, Barnaby. sorry. Um, but yeah, I kind of have some of the same uh, problems that, that you know, I, I, it wasn't that I didn't think it was possible. I didn't necessarily read into it the way that Rocky did. Then we saw some articles come out, and then obviously the way this story ends. And I, I just I just don't see the need for it. And like Rocky said when we talked about the first part one, it just nothing in Tim Drake's history up to this point has ever suggested this. So it just seems sort of arbitrary to me. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It, it just feels weird, honestly, at the end of the day. Uh, but this is who they want to make Tim Drake, you know, what DC, the d- direction DC wants to take him. Well, they own the character and I don't. So whatever, they can take him that direction. I just, I think there are more interesting things to do. Th- this feels like a step back in my mind of who Tim Drake is. I mean, uh, especially go back to thinking of who he was um, in the, in the rebirth era when detective comics basically became the Batman team book. And he was leading that team with, with confidence and, uh, skill and um, competency, and in, in this story, it started off with M- Megan Fitzmartin really showing us that Tim was having somewhat of a, an identity crisis. And I, I tried to understand that. And, and you know, he's not Robin anymore because Damien's there. Um, and so, who is he? And, and he's struggling to find his place. And I, I thought all that was fine. I didn't necessarily have a problem with that. I could sort of see where it was coming from. But it didn't necessarily have to be a, a, a crisis of like self-identity, right? Like in terms of, okay, maybe he doesn't know who he is in terms of his superhero identity, but he should still know who he is in terms of being Tim Drake. Um, yeah. Because like Rocky pointed <laughs> exactly. out, yeah. um, he he never exhibited any any problems when he was in high school or – you know, he always seemed sort of like the most grounded and all of a sudden it, it does sort of feel like it came out of nowhere. And I was giving Megan Fitzmartin the, the benefit of the doubt because maybe he doesn't know where he fits in terms of the Bat family anymore. But this obviously is so much more than that. And I just I just don't know why it's necessary. Um, it feels like, I don't know, wokeness for the sake of wokeness, um, diversity for the sake of diversity, which, again, I'm all for diverse characters, but. Um, to create a new character. I, 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 I don't know. This just doesn't feel necessary to me. So uh, jury's still out on whether or not it'll work in the long run. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, ultimately, it, it just felt like a, a story that only existed to say, hey, Tim Drake is bisexual. And to me, that's not a good reason to write a comic book story. Um, so I thought the art was good. Um, but overall... Yeah, I was. I left. I left feeling disappointed because the first part of it, like I said, with Tim, in my mind, question is his, questioning his identity, his superhero identity. I thought that was very fertile ground to tell a really great story about who Tim Drake is as a superhero, uh, and and what he's going to do moving forward as a superhero, and that was interesting to me. Yeah, the personal stuff is not interesting to me. I don't care if Tim Drake is bisexual or not. To me, that doesn't define who he is as a character. And if it starts to define who he is as a character, I think that's a 
that's a failure because yeah. I think that should be secondary to who these these characters are. And I know that maybe some people don't feel that way and they think, hey, we, we want to be represented too. And I get that. But at, in my opinion, once those things stop mattering, then that's where we've gotten to where we need to be, right? When, well, it, when it's not when it's not bisexual superhero, it's just superhero. Whether you're bisexual, you're heterosexual, you're homosexual, you're African-American, you're a woman, you're a man, you're whatever. None of those labels should apply. And I know that's naive for me to, to say that in this day and age, um, but that's what we need to aspire to, right? Like, like everybody's equal. We're all the same. Everybody, you know, should be granted the same inalienable rights as a human being. And there doesn't need to be labels because everybody is treated exactly the same. And the only thing that matters is who you are as a person, right? Your integrity, what you bring to the table, not your outward appearance, not your sexual orientation. None of that should matter. And I, again, I know I'm naive to say that, but once we get to that point where it stops mattering, then that's where we, we need to be. So again, you want to make Tim Drake bisexual, whatever. I don't, doesn't make any difference to me one way or the other, but tell me good stories with Tim Drake. And to me, the only point of this story felt like, Hey, at the end, we're going to reveal Tim Drake is bisexual. I, again, I don't care. It felt like a, it felt like a wasted opportunity because I'm more interested in who, who is Tim Drake as a hero right now in the DCU? Because I sort of feel like he doesn't have an identity. And I thought that's where Megan Fitzmartin was going. And that's what was intriguing to me. I want to know who he is. Is he Robin? Is he Red Robin? Is he Drake? Who is he? How does he see well, himself right now well, in the I, DCU? How does he, he relate? He can't be Robin. There's Damien, right? Is he is he Red Robin? Is you know like that's the kind of the stuff that I, I want to know. So ultimately that's what interests me. Uh, I do also want to make one quick correction. It's Pat Brasso. I think I have been saying Pat Brusso and Frenching it up ever since I've been giving him credit, the letter. Uh, and I actually had a conversation with him on Twitter a few weeks ago, and I said I would correct it. And then when I gave the credits, I still said Brusso. It's Pat Brasso, like Ross with a B in front. O. so Pat Brasso. Apologize uh, for that, Pat. I will endeavor to get it right going forward. Uh, but anyway, Rocky, uh, you were right. You know, we had that big throwdown uh, on part one, and you oh, you were right. I was wrong. I, I can fully admit it. It didn't really feel. Uh, I, I don't really. F this is not something where I'm going to rub anything in because, quite <laughs> frankly, I if, if ever there was a time when I wish I was wrong, uh, it, it's this one. Uh, although, again, it, it, and it's more from a storytelling point of view. Uh, but, but I, I'll just put it this way. I, I for those watching this. Uh, or watching this on YouTube, I what I have up here on the bottom of this page, imagine this, Bernard and Robin. I'm describing this for the people, benefit of the people on the podcast, listening on the podcast. Uh, Tim Drake and Bernard are fighting. They're in the middle of a fight circle here, and they're surrounded by these uh, this these gang, gang and they're going to fight. And Bernard is talking to Tim, and he says to Tim, I wish we could have finished our date. When I read that, Part of me was, despite despite knowing, despite thinking to myself that, yeah, this they're probably, you know, bye. When I read that, part of me was surprised. I'm wondering how many people, when they read that panel, were shocked. Date? That's an odd thing to say. Because, as you pointed out, and, and we argued about it, 
you you were right when you said there was you could easily have interpreted the previous issues as being just two guys going out and having drinks. I mean, I mean that you know I go out and drink guys drink all the time. Does you know what I mean? Like so that that surprised me. So when and I this would have this in my view that scene would work better if Tim. I was expecting Tim to look surprised. Oh my God, it was a date. Oh my God. You know, like, because here, here's where this is a horrible, horribly scripted. Because all of that, my criticism in the previous issue, when I said that I felt it was exposition heavy where Tim was talking a bunch of nonsense. And I was hoping you were right when you were saying, well, no, he's talking about his past and everything. And that that's a legitimate interpretation. But now it's revealed that really was all nonsense it, because if, if Megan Fitzpatrick wants me to believe that Tim Drake would, she was repeatedly questioned by spoiler, by all her other members of the bad family, you know, Tim Drake, Tim, what's wrong? What's wrong? Nightwing calls him, spoiler calls him. If it, if it was because he has feelings for Bernard, he doesn't just come out and say it. I went on a date with a guy. He, even in his private thoughts, he never once said, he never once said, uh, you know, he, he never referenced his date with Bernard. He never said the word date. It was always talking in, in the superfluous little circle. And this is the, this, this is the slowest buildup to the most underwhelming revelation in a long time. It's nice. It's good. You know, it's subtle. This is about as uncontroversial, I think, as you can get. I think this was very subtly done. I think, you know, on the one hand, I, this type of story frustrates me and it's kind of a waste. On the other hand, this is playing it so, so safe. This can't possibly be offending anybody. This is like, oh, by the way, oh, oh, by the way, he went on a date. And it's just a quick little reference here. And now he's going to go on another date. And, and, and to be, let's be blunt here. This doesn't address any of Tim's problems. How is this going to address his problem? Because now, in fact, are we, are we to understand now that he has this big revelation He's going to get along more, better with spoilers, get along better with night, like all of, to me, this doesn't solve anything. I mean, if, because Tim doesn't seem surprised by any of this, is, are we supposed to get from it? Like, where's the revelation that like, I never got any epiphany here where Tim, you know, I mean, if he was always, <laughs> I, I can't believe that if he's breaking up with his girlfriend, he doesn't say it's because I got feelings for another guy named Bernard. I, it just, I don't know. The whole thing is just a miss for me, but in any event. Whatever. Tweets yeah, and, and you know, again, we we may be missing the point because we we have no frame of, of reference. You know, I do agree with you that I, I think when it's so strange they're about to fight and think they might not even make it, and Bernard throws us out there. That was our, our finished our date. Yeah, again, I <laughs> put a, put a show of surprise on because he does say and ever had a light bulb moment, you know, and that he starts apparently he's thinking about it while he's fighting. Uh, oh, so this is what's been bothering me all along. Like I, yeah. I'm bisexual and I didn't know it. Um, and and again, I mean, from from people I know, they, they it's the opposite. They always knew, um, and maybe they tried to hide it, or or they were ashamed of it, or they felt like that, you know, for, for because of religious upbringing or or whatever, um, and they felt like they had to hide it. But on some level, they always knew. And apparently, it's different for Tim. He he didn't know. He didn't. Maybe he thought he was supposed to follow a certain path, um, you know, the macho superhero guy, and obviously he's got to be heterosexual and, and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we don't have that frame of reference. So maybe 
maybe for some people it does work on that level and that maybe it works for Megan Fitzmartin. Maybe that was her experience. Sure. Um, you know, we don't know, but I think my point still stands that if, if that's the whole point of the story, then I, I, like Rocky said, I think it's missing the point because there's so much more there to be explored. Okay. So we got this three part story and basically the whole point of it was that Tim's going to explore whether or not he's bisexual. There's again, I think there's more interesting aspects to him as a character that I want to know about more than that. That's the least of him in my mind. But again, maybe the whole idea is to appeal to people that have gone through the same kind of a situation, obviously not with, being kidnapped and wearing a costume and fighting for your life alongside the person you went on your first bisexual date with, but just somebody who, who struggled and didn't know why they couldn't feel okay in their own skin until they finally realized, Oh, Hey, it's because of my sexuality or, or whatnot. So again, maybe for other people, it works. Maybe this just isn't a story for you and I Rocky, but um, I don't know. Tim's a beloved character in my mind, so I can see why this would rub some people the wrong way. It doesn't necessarily rub me the wrong way. It yeah. just feels like a missed opportunity. Yeah, no, it doesn't rub me the wrong way. Look, this Bernard's a good guy, and, and like honestly, I, I really, it doesn't. But Tim, Tim is not my. I, I honestly, I could care less if they killed him off. I, he, I've never cared for Tim Drake. Never will. If they want him, they can do whatever they want with him. He can have all the boyfriends, girlfriends he wants, whatever. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, make him transgender. I don't rock the boat. Have fun with him. I don't care. But uh, <laughs> I just think that I think that this was the way that this was told was so uh, like I just thought it was I it was kind of carefully done. It was very, very, very subtle and carefully done. Yeah. I mean, here you and I are seasoned comic book readers and and here, you know, we, we, we argued over it. And hey, I, I could have been wrong. I mean, it was a 50 50 toss up, really. And yeah. then, then to have this reveal like this. Well, like, hey, you know, anyways. <laughs> yeah, the last story uh, called Solo from Rocky's favorite writer, Joshua Williamson, art by Trevor Hairsign, colors by Rain Barreto, letters by Steve Wands. Um, basically, or Oracle calls up Black Canary and says, hey, go infiltrate this trust organization, which stands for Transparent Researchers United for Strategy and Technology, which is really a mouthful and kind of stupid to be honest with you but apparently they uh they bought a bunch of um a bunch of bruce wayne's uh tech a bunch of batman's tech after the joker attack you know like joker had taken over wayne enterprises and he got a hold of a bunch of batman's tech and then at, at the end of it uh i guess it was sold at an auction <laughs> before uh it could be back um under lock and key and so who is trust? Well, Oracle does her best job to find out, and clearly they're a front for some sort of older organization. So she sends Black Canary out to do some recon, and everything goes exactly according to plan. And then come to find out, the the organization behind Trust is apparently led by Lady Lady Talia. So is it is it Leviathan? Is it some other organization? Like how many ancient organizations was? Talia leading <laughs> the league of shadows, the league of assassins, the uh, Leviathan, uh, God only knows. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it, it feels sort of weird. I don't know what Williamson is trying to do. Uh, this is all going to play out in the pages of Deathstroke incorporated, which is um, a title. We know Williamson is going to be writing soon. And apparently that title is going to contain Talia and black Canary, which is that so that is kind of interesting to me a deathstroke 
title with Talia and Black Canary as supporting characters. Maybe some Green Arrow as well with Black Canary in there. That that might be kind of interesting. But unfortunately, I don't know that I have enough faith in Joshua Williamson to to tell that story and have it come out because I don't know this this one, and I can't quite put my finger on it because I thought it was paced okay and I thought the dialogue was okay. And it's Trevor Harrison art, and Trevor Harrison is a competent artist. Um, but for me, it just it just felt like it was missing something. And maybe it's just the overall stakes right now in the in the DC universe where I just it's pulling me out of the story a little bit. Like, well, how many organizations are there? Didn't didn't uh, Leviathan take down all the organizations? Like the DEO and uh, you know yeah. Argus and all that. So wait, so now there's a different organization, Trust, that's a front for another organization. So Leviathan didn't take down, or he did, or what? You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. Am I just supposed to forget about all that stuff? Like, I <laughs> I don't know like, where does this fit. It's just super. It's just really confusing. Um, and yeah. and I I don't know. Uh, I will say that I thought, like I said, that Williamson handled most of the dialogue pretty well, but um, even though it's just one or two lines from Deathstroke, that didn't sound like Deathstroke to me. It felt very forced. Um, same with Talia, although I did like the way Talia looked. So, I don't know. Shadow War is coming, apparently, and it's going to be continued in, in Deathstroke number one. Uh, I'm glad this is a one and done, because if I don't want to read that Deathstroke story, and I very likely won't, um, I won't have to. So any thoughts on this one, Rocky? Yeah, I actually, I actually really like this. I like this. And let me well, say he's your favorite writer, of course. Uh, well, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I want to explain uh, when, when, when Jay said, you've said that numerous, you've said that more than a few times. Uh, Jace intends, he says that with sarcasm because I've been very hard on Josh Williamson as a writer. And I generally, it's been more misses with me than not. However, his Robin is, is okay. I wasn't a fan of his flash, but this intrigues me. Now, the reason why this intrigues me is that I really like the fact that this is a lot of this stuff. It's amazing to me how much of the, 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 the good writing I like is usually they're trying to get rid of the garbage of what Bendis has done. Bendis's <laughs> Leviathan uh, really did destroy so much of what we love about the DC universe with all the intelligence operations. We, we, we know that the DEO is back. In the pages of Infinity, in, in the pages of the Infinite Frontier, with Director Bones investigating the multiverse, and uh, we know that the intelligence agencies are slowly building themselves up again. So it's nice to see that Lady Talia, who was the former leader of Leviathan, Lady Talia here, she lost, uh, she she essentially lost uh, control over uh, Leviathan, and uh, she's so it makes sense that maybe Lady Talia would be maybe trying to build up, uh, working in another organization, trying to build herself up again. We have this new organization called Trust that's so seemingly been, been around and even at one time had Black Canary's mother work for them. So there's that possible even Justice Society connection going to the past. So this is kind of cool. So this is really bringing in all the history of the DC Universe, uh, potentially, which is something that, that Bendis just doesn't know how to do at all. And... Um, and and, we, and in any event, I really like this. Trevor Harrison's art here, it's uh, it's a little bit sloppy in some areas. His line work is a little bit, you know, too, it's kind of like 
It's always hit and miss, but I think it works here for the most part. This new character, Juliet Ballantyne, I'm not familiar with her. Uh, people can let me know in the chat or, or elsewhere, you know, Juliet Ballantyne. I think she's a new character. If I'm wrong about that, somebody can correct me. But I'm interested in this. I... Uh, the fact that Deathstroke's on the team is very interesting. Uh, and uh, Black Canary, I think Black Canary and Deathstroke would make a great, great rapport, a great team. Uh, we know that we actually saw, we saw a wannabe Deathstroke in the pages of Justice League attack uh, uh, Black Canary and Green Arrow. And in any event, I'm looking forward to, to I'm looking forward because to, to see what this shadow war is, because we know something is going on even in the pages of Robin, we got that that we got that tournament involving that League of Lazarus, which is apparently different. We know that there's a League of Shadow. There's 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 all kinds. Of, there's different League of Assassins. There's th all different types of leagues. Exactly, what does all this mean? What this Shadow War? What's going on? How many characters are at play? We have so many rich characters and diverse characters in the DC universe that are Shadow War that is hopefully international in scope. And get Cheshire in there and get all these other, and Katana and get all these other characters in the Shadow War. I think the potential is fantastic. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I will say this about Joshua Williamson is that I think he spent too much time writing The Flash and I think he wanted to get his feet wet with other characters in the DC Universe. He has stated as much in interviews. And hey, man, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, this is, this is starting off good. This is starting off good. And, you know, my fingers are crossed. So far, so good. It is only an opening chapter, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, your point about it tying in with Black Canary's mother and Justice Society is a good one. But again, I go back to, well, then it's an organization that's been around for a long time. So why didn't Leviathan know about it and take it out with all the rest? Make any, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I then know again, it's Leviathan. Then again, so... <laughs> most, most, of, most of Bendis' stuff doesn't make any sense. So Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's it for. Oh no, it's not it for Batman. We still have more Batman titles. One more, anyway. Future State Gotham, number four, written by Dennis Culver. Williamson's no longer co-writing. The art in this particular issue is from Nicola, says Mazua. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. Lettered by Troy Petrie. I still continue to not understand why there's no colors on this book. <laughs> You, you're still paying. I don't know why this book exists. <laughs> there's no colors. Um, it, it makes no sense. Um, the art's bad. Slightly better than when um, Giannis was doing it. Giannis Milano Giannis. Um, but still, I think this art would benefit from color as opposed to uh, Milano Giannis's art actually was better without out the color, but. Uh, it, this is basically a story of Harley fighting punchline in the future state Gotham. Again, it's not good. The art's not good. I don't know why this book exists. <laughs> I'm right there with Rocky. There's a reprint at the end uh, from a black and white Batman story from Michael Golden. Now you would think, oh, I'd be pretty excited about a Michael Golden Batman story. Well, Michael just writes it. The art's by Jason Pearson. And the art's not bad, but I mean, if you tell me I'm getting a Michael Golden Batman story, what I'm looking forward to is the art. Because Michael Golden, in my mind, is a top five Batman artist of all time. Um, so you do, we don't even get that. We don't even get Michael Golden art um, in Batman, on Batman. So I, I don't know why this exists. The story of Harley and Punchline 
fighting each other in the future state Gotham is just forgettable. There's another character we're introduced to called Hunter Panic, and she reminds me of that other uh, bat, bat character that we got, I think, from Steve Orlando, I think is who created it. Mother, Mother Mayhem Mother or Panic? something like that. It, it was Mother, Mother Panic, Panic, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Now we have Hunter Panic, which I suppose is um, – maybe she that's didn't... why her costume looks like Mother Panic. Yeah. But, yeah, this was, this was forgettable. I, I don't know the reason for it. It didn't. It doesn't fit in with any of the previous issues of Future State we got. Um, again, I go back to DC's asking people to pay full, full price, and the book's not even in color. This book can't get canceled fast enough in my mind. It's terrible. Don't waste your money. It's bad. And normally, I, I try to find something positive to say, but I I, I can't. That's how bad this is. I, I literally can't find anything positive to say about this book. So I don't know. Maybe well, maybe you have something positive to say, Rocky. Well, I, I will. Uh, well, <laughs> when you start off like that, it's uh, I can do a little bit more positive than that, but not much. Uh, look, I, I will say this: if uh, here's, uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to start off with a disappointment. This actually gives us a big battle between Punchline and Harley, the one that we we, we were kind of deprived of in Joker War. Uh, I, I was generally, I enjoyed Joker War, but I wanted more of a comeuppance for Punchline at the end of Joker. I, want, I wanted a Punchline-Harley epic battle at the end of Joker War, and we never got it. To me, Harley never really got the revenge for uh, against Punchline for slitting her throat, you know, and... There, it's a heck of a battle here between Harley and I got to tell you between Harley and Punchline and Harley is about to kill Punchline at the end. And, and there's actually, and this is where my compliment will come in. Uh, and I'll give a compliment to Dennis Culver that at the beginning of this story, Punchline remembers, uh, recalls the Joker giving her a gift of a necklace of all the victim's teeth <laughs> and kind of a sick gift, but it's what do you expect from the Joker? And Harley sees that gift uh, uh, when she's about to, you know, it looks like kill Punchline. And she sees that 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 ring of that necklace, pardon me, yeah, the necklace made into a bracelet, converted into a bracelet by Punchline. And and Harley herself remembers that, uh, that she made the Joker a present carved from the teeth of her enemies. And it was actually Harley that made that made that gift and gave that gift to Joker, and the Joker re-gifted it to Punchline. And I think that psychologically, that I think that's very interesting. There, there's something there that you know the Joker was given. The Joker never threw away the gift. I mean, Harley betrayed the Joker, and the Harley never and the Joker never threw away the gift of teeth, that necklace of teeth that that Harley gave the Joker. The Joker re-gifted it to punchline and punchline thinks it's so special she's wearing it as a as a bracelet. I think that was very interesting and that and and seeing that caused Harley to sort of pull back and not deliver that killing blow and and basically Harley even says regifting BS or I mean she swears. And and again, I think frankly artistically if 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 this story could have been maybe drawn by a different artist in color or even this colored up, I think that there is some emotional gravitas here that unfortunately is going to be missed because I don't think a lot of people are going to be reading this, but I will give it, I will give it 
uh, Dennis Culver some credit as a writer. I think that was scripted not bad. And she hardly does leave saying, do yourself a favor, uh, punchline, and get over our ex. It keeps you from seeing things. It'll keep you from seeing things clearly. And, uh, and that's when the punchline says to her that, you know, I wasn't talking about, I'm talking about the next Joker because so there, that's where the misdirection comes in. Harley's telling her, let the Joker go, but apparently punchline's referring to the next Joker. Well, now the big thing is since this takes place in future state, who is the next Joker? I mean, I mean, we joke, we joke a lot about, we get too damn much Joker to begin with. And now we're going to get a next one. Just like we have the next Batman. Like I, I don't know. So, and we're going to get it in the page. If we're going to get another Joker, we're going to get it in the pages of Gotham City, Gotham City Future State. I don't know. Again, some really good ideas here. Some potentially good ideas. But if they're really good ideas, why are they in this comic book? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I fall back on what I said. And again, I don't mean to attack anybody. Nobody's trying to put out a bad comic. You know, Dennis Culver... Or the artist whose name I won't butcher again. Um, you know, it's nothing personal. I just, I don't think DC's giving, giving them a good shot <clears throat> at putting out a good book by putting it out in black and white. So they're kind of being hamstrung in that way. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, they may be talented creators, but again, like Future State didn't work for us and it needs to be forgotten. So why are you continuing to put out a book called Future State Gotham that's set in that? potential future that nobody wanted nobody asked for and from what i have heard nobody liked it needs to be forgotten so <laughs> give them a different book stop uh just stop with this nonsense already mm. all right infinite frontier number four uh joshua williamson once again uh, as a writer we have paul pelletier jesus moreno and Zermonico as pencilers Norm Ratman, Ralph Fernandez, and Zermonico as inkers. Hi-Fi does the colors, and Tom Napolitano does letters. Um, I think you like this a heck of a lot more than I did, Rocky, so you go first. Yeah, uh, I'm just bringing it up here. Uh, yeah, sorry. I. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, it takes a while for this to load up. Okay, here we go. Well, the the issue starts off the 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 beginning of the issue is actually uh, directly related to the to the cliffhanger ending, and it's Captain Carrot of the Amazing Zoo Crew, who is a member, of course, of Justice League Incarnate, that Justice League team that's responsible for looking over the safety and sanctity of the multiverse and the omniverse. Now, uh, talking to Machine Head, and Machine Head is another member of Justice League Incarnate. And he's basically just talking about, you know, uh, you know, Captain Carrot's from Earth 26. And so he, Captain Carrot is dreaming about a day where he can go back to Earth 26. And Machine, Machine Head says something interesting. The, he, and he has, his, he has his helmet off. And Machine Head is reflecting about uh, why he wants to keep the multiverse safe. And he's worried ab uh, ab the, about where their investigation has taken them. And because it's taken them into unusual territory. And we know from last issue that where it's taken them is that the Flashpoint Batman, uh, of course, isn't really from any Earth. The Flashpoint Batman is from a different reality of Earth Zero because he's the Flashpoint Batman. So what makes what makes Flashpoint Batman an aberration in 
in this Infinite Frontier story is that he doesn't technically, he's not from any Earth. He's from an alternate reality of Earth Zero. And the Flashpoint universe doesn't exist. So where in the hell did Flashpoint Batman come from? And how did he end up on Earth 3, where he ended up meeting, of course, uh, just uh, President uh, Superman, Calvin Ellis of Earth 23? So he is an aberration there. And 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 this issue, we we, uh, we meet President uh, Pr- President Ellis takes Flashpoint Batman with him to the White House, and they go and they want to go and they want to investigate. Uh, uh, they they want to. President Ellis wants to find his own arch nemesis, Lex Luthor, the Lex Luthor of Earth twenty three, because his Lex Luthor of Earth twenty three was building this transmatter symphonic array. Uh, to help him sort of travel between uh, building a ship to travel between um, multiverses. And so they they end up uh, going to Lex Luthor, Le- Earth-23's Lex Luthor's hideout, and they find out that Lex Luthor has in fact been killed and somebody has taken his ship. And, um, well, we don't know who took his ship. Meanwhile, we go back to Earth-Zero and we see uh, Chase is talking to Director Bones, and they've captured Obsidian and Alan Scott Green Lantern because they they, they were they invaded the place looking for Jade, and meanwhile they're communicated with by Hector Hammond, uh, and we recall and if you recall at the end of last issue it was Infinite Incorporated Jade and Power Girl and Damage, uh, they ended up taking over uh, the. The, the ship that that um, the Black Lantern was on, uh, Roy <laughs> uh, Roy Harper. So now, what's what's interesting? Where this is all going is uh, everything is building to a head here because Infinite Incorporated shows up and they their instinct is to attack Roy Harper because Roy Harper is. You know they they figure well, you know they well Power Girl doesn't hate doesn't like zombies and uh, and Roy Harper automatically goes into defensive mode when they invade the ship, and and Jade went, Jade fortunately realizes that Roy Harper is is someone who is trying to overcome, you know he she sees the the humanity inside Roy Harper and that he's trying to overcome his uh, sort of the the zombie nature of of being a Black Lantern. And there's a great moment between Jade and Roy Harper where they're united, and and uh, Jade tells a story where she's trying to bring bring the team back together. Uh, Jade, Power Girl, Damage, uh, the new Wildcat—they're all trying, uh, and the Atom Smasher—they're all trying to bring the Justice Society together again and try and essentially try to make sense of uh, what's going on in the multiverse and trying to get a handle on it. And now we jump to Earth Omega because that's where that's where they're headed at their ship. So we've got Infinite Incorporated with Roy Harper, the Black Lantern, and Infinite Incorporated in one ship. Meanwhile, they don't know that the other ship with Director Bones and Chase on it are also on their way to Earth Omega. They end up crashing into each other uh, right when 
Of course, we know that the Flash is being controlled by Psycho Pirate, turning that cosmic, uh, a multiversal cosmic treadmill for purposes of which we don't know. And <laughs> there's complete and utter chaos. And something is happening. We're not sure what it is, but there's a mayday that's occurring as a result of those two as a result of those two starships crashing out of the bleed onto Earth Omega, it creates a mayday throughout the the multiverse that is picked up by the House of Heroes, which which is the Justice League incarnate uh, headquarters, and it picks it picks it up that there's a crisis going on, and and it's where it's there that we discover that there's a traitor on the team of Justice League Incarnate and that traitor ends up being revealed to be uh, Machine Head. And Machine Head, it looks like he kills Flashpoint Batman and and he betrays the team and he's got his own, he's got his own team of, uh, which consists apparently of uh, Superwoman, uh, Savannah, Magog, uh, a Joker Sinestro. Uh, there's a couple of other characters there. I'm not really sure. I, I forget all. I forget some of their names. But in any event, they're they're an eclectic group from throughout the multiverse. And Machine Head, his his the reason why he betrayed the team is that he has a very good argument. And I actually tend to agree with his argument. He says, "Look, we have to enough with this crossing different universes." You know, the problems, every time somebody in the DC universe crosses over into another Earth, we end up with a crisis, inevitably. So enough with the crisis already. Everybody stay in their own multiverse. And what he wants to do, what Machine Head wants to do, is make sure that everybody stays in their own universe. At least that's what it seems to be. And he he's against the agenda. He against, He's against what ju- the, I guess, the principles of Justice League Incarnate uh you know, and he feels that maybe the best way to protect the multiverse is to make sure everybody stays in their own home turf. Nobody, everybody stay in your own universe. Don't betray that. But with everybody now, with everybody being aware of the multiverse in this post omniverse world, because since death metal, we, everybody in the multiverse, all the citizens of all the earths know that there's a multiverse and everybody's curious and everybody wants to explore it. That's a problem. And so you can be very sympathetic to the argument that, you know, enough of this travel. And so he betrays President Superman and uh, ultimately he, he's prepared to use lethal force and he does kill Flashpoint Batman. And you got to and there's no re- and you can understand why he probably figures that Flashpoint Batman is that aberration. He's not even from an Earth. Let's kill him off. And anyways, kudos to Joshua Williamson here. The action here ramps up. I love the art. I mean, uh, this is, uh, this is fun. This is action packed. I just, I love as a longtime DC reader, I'm absolutely loving this. I'd be really curious to know if this is a story that's resonating with fans that aren't as deep into the DC history as I am. Uh, because I'm, I don't know if it was, would necessarily be easy to follow. If you're not a DC fan, it's hard for me to uh, take out of, take, have you know to remove myself from my involvement in the DC universe over the last four decades? But I'm loving this, Jace. Man, did you find this easy to follow? Did you enjoy this? Uh, you said something when you were talking about it there. Um, when you said uh, there's a lot happening, but we don't know what's going on. Yep. That sums up this issue better than than I could. <laughs> I could ramble on for for an hour. 
Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff, but I feel like we don't know what the hell's going on. Um, I don't think so. At the end, when we see this new Injustice League or whatever you want to call them, uh, obviously we know Machine Head, Doctor Savannah, Superwoman, Lady Pork, Magog. Um, I don't think we've ever seen that Yellow Lantern version of the Joker before. And in the back behind Magog, it looks like some kind of a cross between Superman, Red Sun, and and Mongol. <laughs> yeah. And then the guy with the onk on his face, I know I know who that is, but I cannot think of his name. But he's a a DC character from the 90s. He had his own series, and I specifically remember he he was around during Zero Hour because he he had his own Zero issue when they did those Zero issues. Interesting. Um, but I thought I maybe cannot. I would have to pick my. I thought I would have to get out my Grant Morrison's multiversity book. I thought maybe I, some of those. It, it's driving me crazy <laughs> that I cannot remember um, what the heck that guy's name is. But anyway, yeah, I I feel like I just we, we've had all these disparate storylines, um, and it hasn't felt like it's come together, and now it just feels like they're all sort of abandoned and we just have this new storyline about all these different groups of heroes coming together. And I, I, I don't know. I, I sort of feel like I, I understand what's going on. Um, but it, it, it still doesn't make sense to me. You know, like I understand what Williams is trying to do. Williamson is trying to do, but it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, may, maybe it's going to come together at a later point where it'll make more sense. But I don't know. For me, I, I just felt a little bit like this was a mess. Um, and and I more so than previous issues, the different artists and their different styles bothered me more on this issue. Like it stood out more that um, that we have multiple artists here with, with different styles. There are good moments um particularly with with roy harper um and with calvin ellis and thomas wayne there are some good moments but it, it just doesn't feel like it's all fitting together and bones his uh his characterization in this particular issue feels out of sync with the way he's behaved previously all of a sudden he feels like the bad guy here um just out of the blue, whereas before it felt like he was sort of taking the role of the monitor, like the not the anti-monitor, but the monitor in uh, in Crisis on Infinite Earths, where he was trying to bring a team of heroes together to stop bad things from happening. And then all of a sudden, it's his way or the highway, and he seems much more malevolent. So that didn't necessarily work for me either. Uh, I thought the colors overall were pretty good. Uh, that's the, the most consistent thing about the book, but... I don't know. With only two issues to go, is Williamson going to be able to, to pull this off? I just, I just have my doubts. I, I, I don't know. It, it, it just. I don't want to say it was a complete miss, but I, I don't know. Maybe there's something that I'm not, yeah. that I'm not understanding. Well, we about. we know it's we, we know it's just leading to something else. So I don't expect. I'm sure it's going to end on a cliffhanger in, in two issues because it's leading into a. Because DC's been talking about a bigger crisis next summer yet, so I think this is building to something even bigger. So 
whether we like it or not, we're going to be getting more of this for the next, uh, I suspect the next year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he, he has said as much. Uh, okay. So, so that character um, with the red onk is, is fate. There was a version of, of Dr. Fate in the nineties um, that didn't have the helmet and, and had a series called fate. Right. And it did have a zero issue. Um, I'm not, I didn't read it. I'm not familiar enough with it, but yeah, apparently that's, that's who that is. Um, so yeah, I knew I had seen him before. Definitely had his own, uh, own series in, uh, I guess 1987. So anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess we'll. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I. I don't know. It, it sort of feels like, and I've, I've said this before about the series is maybe, maybe there's just not enough real estate. Um, and it seems like something I'm saying more and more, right? Like these these creators have these giant story ideas, uh, and it's, it happens to Scott Snyder all the time. He has these really big story ideas, and even with oversized issues, there's just not enough room. The stories have gotten so big. Um, there's, there's just not enough room to, to put everything on the page that, that needs to be there. And maybe it has to do with kind of the way publishing is now. I mean, we know, for instance, the crime syndicate was supposed to be a 12 issue. And I think a 12 issue series of crime syndicate works a lot better because the, the issues that I have with that series have a lot to do with things, not having room to breathe. Um, and we talked about that when we had Andy Schmidt on and then, you know, when, when, you and I uh, talked to Andy after the, just on Twitter after the, the final issue ended um, or the final issue came out just about things that maybe weren't as clear. So I don't know. It's, it's a lack of patience for editorial, which is probably spurred by a lack of sales and constantly needing to have the next big hit. Um, so you don't see too many and I can't think of any, big event series that last 12 issues anymore. They're all five, six issues. And oftentimes they'll come out by bi-weekly, you know, because they just don't have the patience. When you get 12 issue minis or maxi series, as they're called, they're usually outside continuity. They stand on their own. If you skip a month, it's no big deal. Well, you can't do that when it's a big event like Infinite Frontier and it needs to be tied in. But I mean, does this feel tied into the DCU? Does it feel like it's tied into what's going on in in the regular Flash title or Batman or the pages of Superman? No, not at all. Not at all. And and granted, none of those characters are even appearing here. So what are we really talking about? This is the series that's going to lead into the next series that's going to lead into the next series that's eventually going to lead into whatever Joshua Williamson has planned for the DCU. Who's reading this? Is anybody reading this? I don't hear t too many people talking about it, to be honest. I don't know. It feels strange. It's a strange time to be a DC fan in a way. It um, is. Because these, these, these events like Crisis, Infinite Crisis, Final Crisis, it, it used to be all the DC fans were together and talking about it when these mm -hmm. series came out. You know, even the 52 Weekly series, like people got together and talked about it. And now everybody's sort of, in their own little corner of the DC universe and they read what they read and it doesn't feel connected as much as it used to. You know yeah, what I'm it's, saying? It's going to be interesting to see. Cause I, I know sales like the, 
we finally got the combined sales, which they could only estimate for DC for for June. But I, I'm not. It's going to be interesting to see overall if we ever if we're. I I want to know. I want to know how this is selling. I, I wish that we had more accurate sales data from DC because I like you said, not a lot of people are talking about Infinite Frontier. I mean, uh, I mean, I am. I'm excited about it in, as as a reader, but. I'm an outlier probably because I, but you're right. A lot of people aren't talking about it. Not that I hear a lot of people talking about Marvel projects right now. Uh, but, no. Uh, <laughs> no so a, I don't know. No, but. Indie, indie books seem to be where people are most excited, but I was excited for this. Yeah. Uh, I was real excited after we read Infinite Frontier Zero and knew yeah. this was coming. And then the first couple of issues, first issue, okay, see where he's going. Second issue, things still haven't started to come together. Third issue, they still haven't started to come together. What's going on? And now this fourth issue, all of a sudden, everything's mashed up together, but it's sort of like, I, I don't know. It just feels like a mess, honestly. And I don't, again, like you, like you said, you're probably 100% right. It's not going to end. We're not going to have any sort of conclusion that's just going to lead into the next thing. So I'm not a big fan of, of series that do that. But. All right. Our next one. <laughs> yep. Up to, yeah. Rorschach, Chapter 11, written by Tom King. Jorge Fornes handles the interiors. Dave Stewart on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. Wow. Um, so after sort of getting all the dots connected last issue, <laughs> our detective sort of realizes that he's been manipulated all along. So we, we've had the... Uh, how of everything, like how everything's connected and, uh, you know, him putting together all the pieces of the puzzle last issue. And now this issue, and it's, it's scripted brilliantly. It's, it's, it's amazing what it really Tom is. <laughs> yeah. He's got this detective who's just sort of thinking out loud and, and talking and in his mind, picturing um, Rorschach or the kid answering him back. Um, now, because now that he's got all the pieces put together of the how, now he's starting to theorize about the why. Why did all these events take place? Why was this uh, assassination of Turley um, set up? Why was it set up the way that it was? Who's behind it? And all that. Like, why was that person behind it? And he, he realizes that somebody has been sort of pulling his strings all along. Um, and it's, at the end of the day, it comes down to do the ends justify the means, which, you know, I had, I had speculated uh, or wondered aloud after the last issue of why this needed to be a, a Watchmen story. Or why, like, what was the purpose of setting it in the Watchmen universe? Um, because it could have been told anywhere uh, with any characters. Yeah. Uh, but this sort of brings it all back home with this issue of, of this detective theorizing about the why, why has this all happened? And you go back to that idea of do the ends justify the means, which to me, I know Trevor, Dark Knight Nation would probably disagree, but for me, that's the central question of, of Watchmen, right? Is what Ozymandias did do his, uh, you know, the world peace that supposedly came out of that, which didn't last. And that's a whole nother discussion. And we've talked about it on his show many times. Um, but was the invasion that Ozymandias set up worth it, right? Do the ends justify the means? And that's what Tom King has brought 
this story back around to. And so in that way, it's the perfect story to set in the Watchmen universe because it goes back to that theme. Um, and I know Tom has said in interviews, I think he even said one last time I had him on my show, that this Rorschach story was very much inspired by the uh, the HBO series uh, Watchmen, which I, I didn't see. Did you watch that series, Rocky? Oh, yes, yes. It's excellent. It's excellent. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard good things. But my, my question is, is that a theme in the the HBO series as well? Ends justifying the means. Uh, uh it, it's it's very it's a very different kind of. Um, it, it involves a lot of like time. Uh, jumping back and forth with. Uh, uh, I I I just. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember all the details of it, to be honest. It, it really dealt with issues of race and... Uh, yeah, I remember uh, like hearing about the Oklahoma Massacre. Yeah, the Tulsa, the Tulsa Massacre in 1921. Yeah. And... Honestly, I don't... I, I would have to... I don't remember it properly. I, I don't... As far as the ends justifying the means, I... Well, well it, it's all about trying to get control over Dr. Manhattan. Like ultimately the, gotcha. the forces wanted, they want to get control over the power of Dr. Manhattan. And there's a twist at the end that, you know, that, that the, that the lead, the, the one Lieutenant is actually the one that ends up with the power of, of the power of Dr. Manhattan, or at least it's implied. Unfortunately, we'll never know. Cause it was, the season was not renewed for a second season, but uh, there's all kinds of themes in there, uh, Jace. Uh, so I mean, it, there was there was multiple layers there because there was uh, there was lots of characters that took that went above the law. So I mean, does the end justify the means? I mean, a lot of them bent the law in, in that series and did, did went their own way, uh, I- including Ozymandias. He was still going his own way in that series. You want to talk? Ozymandias is still alive in that in that TV show, and he's actually he's actually on. <laughs> he's, uh, uh, yeah, he's got he sets up his own base on, on, on the moon. And it's, 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 I tell you, like he's still up to his same kind of his same old tricks. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I consider the, when I read this, I don't see the same, like, I don't, this is a, a I can see this in the same world. I can see this taking place in the same world. This is consistent with, I can see this election between Turley and Redford taking place two or three years before the, the events of the TV show or after or whatever. So it, it makes sense to me. I mean, you, you could, you could fit these in, even though they're not technically the same universe, but, but if they are, I mean, you could easily fit them in, into, into your own head cannon. Fair enough. Uh, last thing I'll mention about it is the, the cover, the alternate cover by, I think it's by Gary Frank. <laughs> Uh, no, I take that back. It's by Arthur Adams, which makes even more sense. And Sabine Rich, um, Arthur Adams, (laughs) he drew himself on the cover dead in a dumpster stabbed by a pencil in the throat. Apparently (laughs) fantastic. I love it. Rorschach's there holding a, a poster, you know, local cartoonist missing. And we see, there we see Arthur Adams head covered uh, body partially covered by a pizza <laughs> and uh yeah he's been stabbed with a pencil I, I don't know i just got a big kick out of that so 
But yeah, this has been a great story. And I, I talked before about one of the first things I'll do after I read issue 12 is immediately go back and read issues one through 12, like in one sitting, because it's, uh, it's fantastic. Great, great story. Well, yeah. And, uh, you, you know, what's great about this is, uh, when you say it's well scripted, it is fantastically well scripted. This is one situation where, you know, Tom King has had, when he's, some sometimes his scripts are really go nuts and they're they're hard to follow. But this one actually, at, at first, there are people that that drop this after two or three issues because it was all over the place. And and you could you could get that sense. I could sympathize with some people's criticisms of of the earlier issues and just dropping off soon and dropping those issues. But. It all comes together now, and it, it especially the last three issues in particular have been really, really good. And the, what I find, what's really come together well is the the lieutenant that's investigating this. He himself is going a little bit crazy. He's he clearly he's now put it together. He knows that Turley is the one who is a politician who likely has has created almost like a false flag operation to uh, make it look like. Uh, President Redford is trying to assassinate him because he doesn't think he can beat Redford. So he wants to, I mean, Turley's, Turley's own people are make, are, are setting this up to try to create a situation where somebody, where, where this, uh, where this Laura character and this, this uh, Myerson, the comic book writer, they got together and they were expected to be incompetent. They were expected to attempt to assassinate uh, uh, Tillerson and to fail. And, and, they, when they and where the the whole operation fell apart was when they realized that this this girl is was was such a good shot that she could actually make the shot, <laughs> and that was terrible because if she's that good a shot that she could actually pull off an assassination from that far away, well they had to shut the operation down and that's that's one of the reasons why she uh, there was that that extra body and that was discovered in their in their headquarters and. Uh, I mean, it, it all comes together. All this crazy nonsense that happened in past issues suddenly starts to make sense. And you feel so sorry for the lieutenant, the, the, this detective that who's putting this all together. He's drinking and he's getting drunk. And, and he pretty much, you can almost tell like he's screwed because he's aware of all this. And he's a pawn too. He's got to be thinking to himself, they're going to have to kill him because he's the only one. He, he's figured it out. And you know that if they if they're prepared to, you know, create, you know, fake a, an assassination attempt and he's and he's the one investigating it his life is potentially in danger as well leading into the final issue and he likely knows that and this issue ends with him going up to a, to talk to Tillerson uh and there's a great full page spread here where you know half of the faces half of the, it shows the head of the of the detective uh half of it is the detective's head and the other half is Rorschach and and of course, the Rorschach part of his brain is saying, you have to kill him. Now, this to be clear, this detective, he's not possessed. He's not crazy. He's just very stressed and he's, he's pissed off. He's put it all together. But you can you could almost tell he's as angry and as frustrated as Rorschach was 
in Watchmen. He's so frustrated with the corruption, with the greed. He's become like Rorschach now. He's so angry. And, and as readers who've been reading this, these 11 issues, I'm pissed off for him too because we've been pushed and pulled in different directions. I mean, Tom King did an excellent job. We thought for sure it was Redford. Redford was, was trying to assassinate T T Tillerson. But first we thought it was Tillerson, then Redford, then Tillerson. Then we thought it was a third party. Then we thought it was just a bunch of crazy comic book artists. Then we thought it was just a bunch of, you know, King, Tom King's done a really good job here of leading us into different directions until finally we're at the home plate and we're frustrated because it was Tillerson all along, that bastard. And so, uh, you know, at the end here, what's very telling is that on the, at the end, it shows the detective getting in the elevator and uh, his and all he says to the guy talking next to him is is Herm, you know, the, the H-U-R-M, that 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 whatever vocal, however you vocalize that, that's that's a sound that Rorschach always made in Watchmen <laughs> when he had that silent mm -hmm or whatever. And you could tell that this detective, my interpretation of this and, and maybe you can uh uh, help me along is I think he's in Rorschach mode right now. <laughs> I think he wants to go up there and take out Tillerson. I'm not sure he's going to, but like he's in Rorschach mode right now. He is pissed off and he wants to get to the bottom of it. How did you interpret that last panel? Yeah, I think his his name's Turley, not Tillerson, but but yeah, I, I, <laughs> I yeah I, I I interpreted it the same way. Um, but again, when I t talked about you know this detective having his strings pulled, I mean th this is exactly, and that's why he's that's part of why he's so angry. He's been manipulated into the situation. The kid and uh, and and Rorschach they knew that their assassination attempt was doomed to fail. But the way they can really take out Hurley is to is to go through the motions that they did, do everything exactly the same. If they had to go back and do over again, they'd do it exactly the same. Because they knew that they could not succeed in assassinating uh, Turley, but in in this way, by allowing themselves to be manipulated by or to appear to be manipulated by Turley, what they really were doing was setting the stage for whoever came after and put all the pieces together to realize that Turley's such a terrible person, such an evil guy, that he has to be stopped at any uh, at any cost. And that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about, again, going back to the idea of the ends justifying the means. And now this detective has become the tool. He has become Rorschach um, in a different way than, than uh, obviously uh, Kovacs ever was or Meyerson uh, ever was Rorschach. Um, he's been you know, man manipulated through being led down this trail, smart enough to figure it out smart enough to know that Turley has to be stopped. So really going to be really curious to see how Tom King wraps this all up. Uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Really, really great story. Not, a, not at all what I expected this Rorschach story to be. It's no, been. And, and a fantastic cover. What a, uh, the, yeah. the cover a, what a gort, like that showing that conversion to Rorschach. I mean, like yep. his whole body being that way, sort of slowly being taken over. I mean, artistically, it was such a beautifully symbolic and metaphorical cover and perfectly suited to the story as it exists in issue 11. Very well done. Yep, 100%. Uh, all right, up next, Wonder Woman 777, Afterworlds Part 8. We're on Part 8 of the Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan story. Pencils in this one by Emmanuel Lupacchino, 
inks by Wade Von Grobinger, colors by Jordi Belair, letters by Pat Barroso. Brasso. Yes, Brasso. I can't even say it right, no matter what I try. Uh, but it's not Brusso. Brasso. Uh, all right. So we saw last issue, Wonder Woman back on Earth. We find out in this issue it's not the Earth that she thought it was. It's Earth 11, which apparently is a sort of a gender-bent world where all the heroes that were female on Earth are or all the heroes that were male on Earth are, are male here. So all the heroes that are male on our Earth are female here is what I'm trying to say. So we have a female Superman, a female um, version of Batman. We have Marsha Manhunter instead of Martian. Uh, Star Sapphire, obviously female in both. There's a, an Aqua Woman. There's a Flash who's female. And so uh, Siegfried and Wonder Woman finally catch up to... Uh, Janice, for the first time, come face-to-face and battle her, but she manages to escape after manipulating Dane. Instead of Diana of Themyscira, it's a Dane. There's um, basically a male version of Wonder Woman, which there are plenty of male version, uh, male cosplayers of Wonder Woman, so I, I wonder if they'll take inspiration from this this costume. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just kind of more of the same, although I, I guess... And, and you could speak to this, Rocky, because you were talking previously about how, you know, at first we liked the fact that it was it was Wonder Woman crossing over with all the, these other mythologies. But at some point it just becomes, okay, enough. It stops feeling like Wonder Woman when she's in fairyland or she's, in, you know, um, she cares more about gods and, and other myths than she does about the humans on Earth that she's trying to get back to protect, supposedly. I guess in this way... Um, this is more of the same because Wonder Woman does go to an earth that has superheroes, but in a way superheroes are the modern myths, you know, so you could still talk about, this is just Conrad and Clunan keeping Wonder Woman on that path of exploring different mythologies. It just happens to be one that's more modern, right? Superheroes, the modern myths. Um, but at least she got to actually confront, um, Janice, if not defeat her where she is now after going through the portal can't say based on the fact they look like they're floating through some i don't even know dystopian asteroid field with like blood floating in the air i I have no idea no idea where they are next um but i i'm starting to come around to your way of thinking right this has gone on way too long part eight this is part eight uh, we need to get to the point already. Um, this Janice character for all her power and, and the fact that Wonder Woman has been pursuing her for eight issues. Um, she feels very mustache twirling. There's not much to her. She's very evil, two dimensional, not interesting. Uh, I'm ready for something different from this creative team. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I mean, this is Wonder Woman's 80th anniversary year, and I feel like she continually gets short change from DC. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. Marika Tamaki, Marika Tamaki's run started off with a lot of promise, and I feel like this run started off with a lot of promise too. But it's it's lost its way. It's It's mired in this too long narrative. We need to get to the point already. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the art by Emmanuel Lupacchino, it, it's okay. Um, 
but frankly, I've seen her do much, much better. Um, it just, it's just inconsistent. And, and I feel like part of the inconsistency, especially early on, has to do with the number of characters that she has to draw when there's this entire uh, league. can't remember what they call themselves. The Justice Guild. The Justice Guild. There you go. Um, it's a lot of characters to, to draw. So I can see why it looks rushed in places. Um, but in other places, it looks as good as it as her work has ever looked, which is, you know, saying quite a bit because uh, she is a talented artist. But yeah, overall, I was a little disappointed in this. What do you think? Yeah, I, you know, part of me is uh, I've always enjoyed Earth 11. I like the concept of Earth 11. I like the gender flipping. I think it's kind of fun. It's a fun concept. I, but, you know, leave it, unfortunately, leave it to Wonder Woman. Uh, and because I don't, and I'm, I'm going to sound cynical here, but how can you take a concept like Earth 11 and you, you make it, you make it as cliche as possible and about as pandering to feminist nonsense as this? Of course, the, the only, you know, the only gender flip villain it, obviously Wonder Man is a misogynist. He's, you know, he's anti-women. He's against the matriarchy and. Uh, it's just so, it's so, this is so cringeworthy. That's, that's what I just find so disappointing about it. Wonder Woman's journey, th uh, from, you know, tr her, she's supposed to be ascended. She leaves the pages of death metal to ascend to a higher, you know, she, she is supposed to ascend to the, to the quintessence. She chooses not to join the quintessence. Instead, she wants to lurk for this lurking threat that we know to be dark side. And that journey ultimately takes her through through uh, Norse mythology, through the uh, Olymp then through the gods of Olympus, then to the graveyard of the gods, and then to sort of a fairy tale land of fairies and whatever with Ratatosk glass issue, and and now she ends up here on 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 Earth Eleven of all places. I would have preferred to see her visit other Earths instead of the you know the graveyard of the gods and this other nonsense. It make it would make more sense if she would have visited more actual earths in the multiverse since she, she was she's looking for a lurking threat and it and you know we finally got a mention here finally got a mention of 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 that she, of what her you know some hints as to what she might what she's doing when she's explaining to the justice guild what's going on we should have gotten those explanations much earlier um but in any event this, uh, I like Emmanuel Appuccino's art, I think is ideally suited for drawing beautiful women. <laughs> Emmanuel Appuccino, she's a, she's a beautiful woman herself. Uh, and she's, she draws beautiful women. Surprise, surprise. So artistically, I just like this style of art and I enjoy seeing these characters. Uh, I, not a heck of a lot happens here. I, I think, however, I did have fun with this issue. I would have preferred issues more like this than the previous issues we've gotten. At least go and let's explore. There are so many cool Earths in the multiversity of things and Grant Morrison's multiversity. There are so many cool universes that she could have visited and have Janice go through all. That would have been so cool. I would have loved to have seen that. I mean, I'm not a huge, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of like scavenger hunt stories type thing. But if you're going to have that, at least have it fun. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not a big fan of Wonder Woman doing the cliche thing. This has been very, very Wonder Woman in a cliche manner, mythology, gods, blah, blah. This is actually something that's off the beaten path, and I kind of like it. Unfortunately, 
the whole Wonder Man thing was really, really cringeworthy, Re- you know. But, you know, I don't know. It's, I guess it is what it is. I just, whatever. I agree with you. She's now, they're finally chasing Janice, this Janice God, to another aspect or part of the multiverse. Uh, they're on a trail of the God killer. The, the fate of everything that ever was hangs in the balance. I think it's still Ratatusk telling the story that the, the squirrel. I, I'm not. I'm not really sure that, that. I'm not sure why the fate of everything hangs in the balance here. Janice is just another god. There's gods in every universe. I, I don't see how anything rides on what Wonder Woman is doing right now. You know, I don't because we already have we already have a whole team of superheroes and from all over the multiverse in infinite frontier actually doing their jobs and on earth omega doing something useful right now wonder woman's not doing anything useful she's chasing janice a god that that just that was just created for this series by this group of writers and nobody cares about it and we're we're getting you know different artists we we it feels completely disjointed different stories all over the place i agree with you uh, even though I've enjoyed the stories individually at different times for their own purposes, frankly, I, I want Wonder Woman needs to be connected to the DC universe. She needs to be connected to the DC universe. She was the one that saved the multiverse that led to the, the post uh, death metal universe that we're all uh, reading adventures in right now. So, yeah, hopefully this will pick up steam quick, but this is... Uh, this is uh, increasingly frustrating. Yeah, agreed. Uh, all right, on to the next book. It's Hardware Season 1, Number 1, from writer Brandon Thomas. We have pencils by Dennis Cowan, inks are by Bill Sienkiewicz, colors by Chris Sotomayor, and letters by Rob Lee. What do you think of this one, Rock? Uh, I... Uh, this... Uh, as someone, I've said this before, I've, I'm not someone who's very familiar with the Milestone universe. And I actually, I've been enjoying it. I've, uh, I, I really enjoyed Icon and Rocket. Uh, Icon, Icon and Rocket are my favorite. I really enjoyed Static. And I've enjoyed getting to know uh, the, the character of, I, I guess, hardware in the pages of Static. This is the first time I've ever read a hardware issue. And... It's actually, uh, it's kind of, it, it, it's very much an Iron Man kind of, uh, a Tony Stark playing on the, the he's, he's basically the Tony Stark of the, of the Milestone universe, of the DC universe. And um, we, we already knew his origin uh, from reading the pages of Static. And then they also had that Milestone special. And basically he's, um, I forget his, uh, what's his actual character name? Do you remember? Curtis Metcalf. Thank you, Curtis Metcalf. Curtis Metcalf is someone who who uh, is working for this corporation, and he developed this gas that was ultimately used in the protests. Uh, and during during an event they call the Big Big Bang, this this gas was released, and it gave a lot of the pe- the protesters superpowers. And one of those people it gave powers to was Static. And anyways, he's blamed for it, and the corporation did it on purpose. But the corporation is height is preventing themselves from, from being criminally liable by by blaming it all on Curtis Metcalf and Curtis Metcalf of is hardware is 
ultimately has to sort of operate outside the law. And he's working to prove his innocence against the corporation that he used to work for. And this is just really a setup issue for that. And as a setup issue, it does it very well. I'm, I have to admit, I'm, I'm still more of a fan of Icon and Rocket. Uh, but this is, you know, uh, I'm, I enjoy this. Uh, to be honest with you, I, th- this feels very much like a, an Iron Man. But I actually find him at least as interesting as Tony Stark. He's not as much of an a-hole as Tony Stark is. <laughs> <laughs> At least not yet. I don't know. Maybe he's got some hidden demons or maybe his demon in the bottle is uh, drug use or uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe he's a, we'll see. I don't know. But uh, I'm going to I'm going to continue to check this out. I, I I always feel I'll be I'd be lying if I said I did. I, I don't feel a little bit guilty <laughs> during the 90s. I sort of the only thing I enjoyed of Dwayne McDuffie was uh, his contribution to the Justice League animated series. I never did give Milestone comics its it's due other than the few times it crossover it crossovered with uh, the DC universe characters, but I enjoyed this overall. What do you think? Uh, yes, my least favorite of the reboots for uh, milestone um, because I, I felt like this one brought the least amount of something new, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, I mean, it's, it's all, you know, pretty much the same. Curtis Metcalf is a genius he worked for Alva Industries. Edwin Alva recognized his genius, took advantage, um, was was sort of corrupt, and, and Edwin believed that his mentoring of, of Curtis all along would mean that Curtis would go along with whatever Edwin wanted to do. And then, yeah, when things went sideways at the protest, they basically scapegoated Curtis because Curtis wouldn't, you know, go along with the corruption of what of what El, uh, Edwin wanted to do you know, to increase his power base. So it's not the most original idea, but it was done well back in the day and it's done well here. But again, it's not in this issue. There wasn't a lot brought new um, as opposed to the icon and rocket, which very much felt updated for, for now, as opposed to the nineties and static in a way as well with uh, Vita Ayala bringing the, the idea of the family unit still together, as opposed to broke, uh, Virgil Hawkins coming from broken home or having a single parent or, or whatnot. This is all sort of, you know, straight out of the nineties. Uh, and, and not to say that it feels dated, there's nothing in here that feels dated, but there's also nothing that grounds it in, in modern times. This easily could have been the exact same issue that came out in the 1990s. There's nothing in it that, that suggests that, you know, it's, it's modernized. Um, and that's not to say that it's bad because it's very much an action-packed issue with great Dennis Cowan art. And, you, you know, you got Sienkiewicz on pencils and very con- – or on inks, rather, and very kinetic. And the um, the colors are very vibrant as well. So it's a good start. I'm just – it's set up. Like Rocky said, there's, there's nothing really to sink your teeth into here yet. But that's not to say that it, it's not coming. It's just in terms of – a first issue just feels paced differently, you know, in terms of the first arc, it just feels paced differently than, than the others. Whereas I would expect, and we, we got a little bit of that in, in the second issue of, of static where it felt like it slowed down a little bit. And the second issue of static felt like it was setting up further things uh, coming up in the, in the story. We haven't gotten the second issue of icon and Rocky yet. So it's hard to say. Um, but yeah, this felt like a little it, it, introducing us to the characters and 
kind of the gauntlet throw down, thrown down between Edwin Alva and Curtis Metcalf and waiting for the, the friction between them to really kick off because we know that uh, Curtis Metcalf is wanted and uh, he's going to be kind of the man on the run and he fights against, you know, helicopters and military and whatnot here, but let's get to the nitty gritty. Let's get to Edwin Alva trying to, to bring him in or trying to kill him. And let's get to uh, Curtis Metcalf as hardware trying to take down uh, Alva Industries. That should be uh, interesting. In a way, you could almost think if you want to carry that Tony Stark comparison forward, you could think of it as uh, Armor Wars in a way, right? Um, yeah. Curtis Metcalf worked for Alva Industries for years, and they're going to have a lot of his tech that he built, and they're going to be turning that tech against him. But will Metcalf have the advantage of knowing what the weaknesses of that tech is because he's the one that invented it? So, uh, yeah, curious to see where this one goes. Uh, all right, on to our last book that we're going to talk about for the week. This is my favorite title. wasn't close. Um, it's Justice League Last Ride number four from writer Chip Zdarsky. Incredible art, once again, from Mende uh, Miguel Mendoca. We have Enrica and Giolini doing the colors and rule design on letters. Wow, this one blew me away. Uh, it was just so good. What did you think, Rocky? Um. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, uh, it's funny. This is issue four. Issue three was my least enjoyable issue so far. One thing issue three never had is that is that it never had it never had a lot of flashbacks. And uh, my favorite issues were were issues. Uh, I believe it was issues one and this issue four because we had we had flashbacks to the what happened to Martian Manhunter, and essentially how we know that we know that at one point. The Justice League battled the dark side and the hordes of apocalypse and the parademons of apocalypse, and that they just they they barely managed to defeat dark side, but the it cost them the life of Aquaman and uh, Martian Manhunter, and and but we don't we don't know exactly what happened, but we know that that it drew a, a wedge between Superman and Batman in particular, and. Um, it's very fitting that on cover B of this uh, issue of Justice League Last Ride number four, we have a, a beautiful cover of, of Martian Manhunter, one of the better ones, actually. Uh, I'm not sure who the cover, cover artist is for that variant cover, but it's, it's quite nice. But in any event, uh, the, the flashback, it shows the flashback and Martian Manhunter, uh, you know, Batman has to make a call and uh in in order to defeat uh, Darkseid they they need to open up uh they need to open up uh I guess basically open up a, an energy system that unfortunately that will require a Martian Manhunter to do so Superman is not within range but that will involve exposing Martian Manhunter to fire that will kill him and ultimately uh that's that's what happens and uh you know Chip Sardaski does such an amazing job here. The 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 elevation of this action, the the decision that that Batman has to make. Batman prides himself on always being two or three steps ahead, and but Batman is not two or three steps ahead here because, in fact, Batman even you know Batman does everything he can. You know he he talks to Wonder Woman in the field, but Wonder Woman has been injured. She's injured on on the battlefield, so she she's sort of taken off, so she's limited as what she can do. 
uh, Bat, uh, Superman is too far away. Uh, you know, the only Batman knows the only person that's capable, uh, realistically, who's close enough to help and do what needs to be done is Martian Manhunter. And there's just, you know, there's so much emotional gravitas with all these scenes. Superman wants to wants to be there to be the one. He knows he can do it, but he's battling Darkseid for God's sakes. Well, you know, you're going to be preoccupied when you're battling Darkseid. You're not going to be able to uh, to do two things at once. And and Superman is so distracted in, by the thought that John that that his friend John Jones will give his life that it's distracting him and it's it's impairing his battle his fight with Darkseid and even Hal Jordan says the Superman, get your head in the game for God's sakes. Like, you know, you got to trust you, you, you know, you can tell the emotions are, are just, you know, are so higher. I would love to see this as an anime, a justice league animated movie. This would be fantastic. There's even a cinematic- forget the animated, forget the animated. I want to see this live action. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but this is really, really good. The way this plays out. And man, uh, just the sacrifice that John makes, it's, uh, I encourage everyone to pick up this issue because, uh, you know, e- even Martian Manhunter's goodbye to Batman when they, you know, they, they shake hands and uh, J- John's does what he needs to do. And the Superman screaming John's name and Wonder Woman looking up as, as the energy is released and, and you know, you know, they win the day, and and then, and then there's complete silence, and it flashes forward to the present, where, where Wonder Woman and and John Stewart are are battling, and doing battle uh, above Apocalypse. Batman is talking to Green Lantern because, what's what's interesting is that, how they defeated Darkseid was that they shut down the engines on Apocalypse. And by doing so, that led to the loss of Martian Manhunter's life because they had to they had to basically shut the engines down. But now, ironically, they have to start the engines up again in order to in order to protect themselves because they're on Apocalypse with with Lobo, and they want to make sure that 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 Lobo uh, is is going to be able to stay alive long enough to protect them long enough to stand trial for for playing a role in the killing of the new gods, and. You know, there's a great scene here with uh, Batman and, and and Hal Jordan, where where Batman, you can finally you see some some guilt for Batman. Batman is, you know, he says to Hal like he's always two steps ahead, and if he was two steps ahead, he could have made it so Superman was there instead of Martian Manhunter. But but Batman, you know, Batman, you know, was not able to do that, and and it, it's an, you know, again. This is the this is the type of character work that I like to see. Uh, I wish we'd have gotten more of this. This is the type of conversation that they were sitting around a campfire in issue three and last issue, and 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 they couldn't have this conversation. Cat- Batman had a prime opportunity to open up, and and Superman they and you know Wonder Woman was talking around the fire. Flash was talking. Hal, all of them, but Batman and Superman climbed up around each other around the fire, and. But here it is, Batman. He can say this to to Hal, to Hal Jordan, and uh, it's interesting that there's that it says something about the relationship between Batman and Superman. That in so many ways, they're they you know they they rely on each other instinctively, but yet emotionally sometimes they have a hard time. They have an unbreakable bond in many ways, and yet Chip Sardaski does a good job of 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 
of showing that their vulnerability prevents them from opening up to each other when they need to to mourn the loss of of, of a of a comrade of a teammate and just a beautifully well crafted issue very well done and uh yeah man this is tug at the heartstrings a little bit uh, how, how how'd you take it how'd you enjoy it yeah i mean i think that's the whole point is that batman can talk about it with somebody else superman can talk about it with somebody else but they can't they can't talk about about it with each other because they both feel responsible um and i i think that that's an incredible story craft from chip Zdarsky, right like it starts out in the first issue of the series and you sort of think the reason that they can't they can't talk to each other is because they blame each other right like superman blames batman batman blames superman they're angry at each other they can't talk about it and then as the story unfolds in a way, the sense that I got in reading this issue is that the reason Batman can't talk about it with Superman is because he feels like he let Superman down. And the reason that Superman can't talk about it with Batman is because Superman feels like he let... So in, rather than blaming each other and that being the source of the animosity, it's that they look at each other and like you were saying, they have that unbreakable connection because they're probably the two greatest heroes in the DC Universe they know that they have not performed their best and each of them feels guilty. And so Superman can't look at Batman without seeing his own failure reflected, right? That's how he feels. It's not so much that he blames Batman. Um, and then vice versa, you know, Batman's like, he, he tells, he tells, uh, Hal, yeah, so I think Superman blames me and he's, and he's right to blame me. So that, that's incredible storytelling. It, it's, it's just fantastic. As far as the art goes, so, you know, I've talked before about how I've met Miguel Mendoca and he's, he's an incredibly nice guy and, and super fun to hang out with and talk to and whatnot. And I said last issue, issue three, I thought was the best work of his career. Well, that was only until I saw this issue because, <laughs> oh amazing. my God. Like, it's really good. It is like, so, you know, I reached out to Miguel and made some arrangements to get some pages from issue three or whatever. And then I was talking to him just uh, earlier today as we record this. I was like, yeah, I might have to get some issues from from page four or some uh, pages from issue four also. And I started flipping through and trying to figure out which page I'd want. And I'm like, you know, what would be cool. You know, what would be amazing would be because I can't choose. Every page is awesome. And it's always been a dream of mine to own a whole, like the original art from a whole issue. Yeah. Be like, what, let's work out a deal, Miguel. Let me, let me, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't it be cool for you to know that this complete issue like still exists out there in somebody's collection and it's not one page over here and one page over there and one page over here like man i i just i want I, this art is so amazing I, I want the original art of this issue to like live on together as one whole unit so it's probably way out of my price range but oh my god i mean that that page with mongol um, and it's not always the big pages either. I, I mean, the, the, the page with Mongol is really cool. And obviously the page early on with Calabac, Miguel's version of Calabac is he yeah. looks uh, sufficiently demented. But in some of the quieter scenes, you know, like I talked about before, my favorite scene. Um, and in this one where, uh, again, it's where Superman's talking to Lobo. And Lobo's kind of laughing and Superman just gets this look on his face. You know, it's the simplest panel. Uh, yeah, that one there. And just, I mean, that is, to me, that is a perfectly rendered Superman. 
and you can just tell by the look on his face, like all the emotion there, you know, like he wants to go over there and shut Lobo up, but he won't because he's <laughs> Superman. And, but, and that's all there in the face. Um, so yeah, I mean, the artwork is just stunning. Like, I don't know if that anybody can look at this artwork and not realize that Miguel Mondoka is a superstar in the making. Yeah. I mean, yeah. flip to the last page, Rocky, the, the, uh, where cyborg Superman shows up. That's a whole nother thing. Like, wait, why is Cyborg Superman showing up? Why is he leading Parademons? I mean, that that that's straight up Mad Max, you know, Thunderdome. Uh, yeah. It just it looks awesome. It, it just looks awesome. I mean, the color work uh, as well. You know, the way the uh, the little lights on the Cyborg's belt are, and and the symbol Superman symbol are all glowing. I mean, great work from Enrica Angiolini. Uh, yeah, this is just. This is a fantastic, fantastic story. Th- this makes me want Chip Zdarsky to write <laughs> Justice League. Like, I don't know if he has more ideas for a Justice League story beyond just this, but yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, Chip is, uh, you know, we talk about it all the time on this podcast about what an incredibly uh, emotional writer he is in terms of bringing emotion and interaction, and, and this is no... Uh, you know, this is no exception. Seeing Martian Manhunter give his life uh, for for the universe, you know, knowing that he made that choice to drain the fires of uh, Apocalypse and turn it into a dead world, and then you know, uh, kind of on that same note, Lobo has a point. It's probably why Superman is so kind of perturbed by what he says. You know, you guys are playing gods. You know, you you. You bastiches, uh, you know, blew up the world, <laughs> causing its residents to have to have to leave. Uh, and again, you know, in a way, they have a point. What, what gives the Justice League the right? Obviously, you want the universe to survive, and Darkseid was out there doing terrible things, and it's it's the only choice they had. But yeah, there's there's consequences there. There's guilt beyond just the fact that uh, Martian Manhunter didn't didn't survive the mission. Um, yeah, and f- fantastic character design on Mongol too with with the armor on just yeah amazing and and to go back to his uh Miguel's Superman what's so great about it and I've seen Miguel um do several Superman pieces he's done a Superman piece for me and I've I've seen other Superman pieces he's done one of the things that I love about the way Miguel draws Superman is he's not he's not uh over rendered right like he looks powerful but he's not like huge hulking um, and there's something to be said for that. Like, you know, John Byrne definitely drew Superman and Clark Kent as a very, you know, muscular individual, huge shoulders and whatnot. Um, and I, I kind of like that. That's that's a classic Superman look. But in a way, Miguel's is is more classic. It goes back to kind of the Wayne Boring um, sort of style of Superman where he's not, you know, too too big, you know, kind of the, the Christopher Reeve, you know, in, in, in Superman the movie, um, that, that sort of thing where – he looks muscular and he looks powerful, but he's not huge and hulking. Uh, and I, I do like that. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite DC books that's coming out right now just because it's such a fantastic story and all the artwork from the color art to uh, what Miguel's doing with the line work is just uh, nailing it on all cylinders. Um, I, I just, it's fantastic. I really hope, I mean, it's probably not realistic for me to, to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to buy all, all the pages from issue number four. That would probably cost, you know, 10 grand or something insane like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, Miguel's a nice guy and everything, but I don't think he's going to, going to 
you know, let me swing. I, I probably could like afford maybe three grand. I, I just can't see. I mean, it's just worth way more than that. And I wouldn't blame them for, you know, I'll make them an offer, but I don't, I don't expect to be able to purchase all the pages. But my point is I would like to see like a, a director's cut of this uh, series, you know, like a, what do they call them? Unwrapped or whatever. Like when DC puts out, uh, like they did it with Flashpoint, where they put out like a black and white version. Um, so yeah, yeah, that would be that would be cool. Like I would love to see that, especially with Chip's scripts in there. Like I don't know if Zdarsky is somebody who who uh, publishes his scripts. I think so because I think I think Daredevil number one, his Daredevil has a has a director's cut that has a script. Because I don't know, I I just love that sort of behind the scenes. See what chip actually put in the script and then see what miguel actually drew on the page but see it in its pure form just the pencils and whatnot and i don't i have no idea if justice league last ride is selling well enough to to do that to warrant that but man this it is deserves just so, it. it's good enough it's, yeah. it's absolutely it's 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 definitely the uh, well, it's the best Justice League title out right now. I mean, I, I'm enjoying this more. I like Justice League Dark, but uh, ju this last ride is definitely this is number one. Yeah, without without a doubt. Uh, all right. Well, there are a few other DC titles coming out this week that we should mention. Uh, Batman: The Adventure Continues, season two, number three. Uh, there's all the uh, free comic book day issues that we talked about. There's also Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries number five that's coming out. And then uh, I think there are also a couple of trades uh, coming out from DC this week. So uh, let me just pull those up real fast and let you know if you're a trade waiter, what's coming out this week. Uh, well, no, that's last week. Well, there are, I'll just say there are trades um coming out let's see if i can like i said pull it up real fast oh yeah here we go maybe not sorry yeah so uh other than justice league last ride rocky uh it, did you have another title that you would say is your your favorite title uh, well I DC did enjoy, yeah. I I enjoyed Infinite uh, Frontier uh, number four. I I did enjoy that. I think it's ramping up, and I do like the uh, Matthew Rosenberg backup with uh, Black Canary, and uh, with you know meeting up with with Deathstroke and f forming a new team and this this Shadow War coming up. I like what it's teasing, and the and the Wildcats things with Matthew Rosenberg with the, with the Zealot and getting uh, Wonder Woman's blood. I mean, there's. There, there are the the most interesting aspects of of the DC universe. The storylines that I'm most excited about, uh, frankly, the ones that intrigue me the most don't don't involve Batman. You know, I don't mind Batman. I think Batman is fine. I'm enjoying Batman and Detective. But the ones that are that I read first, the ones you know, the, the, it's the smaller stories. You know, in the Urban Legends and and the Suicide Squad. I'm I don't know. Overall, I'm just I'm really liking the DC universe, man. I I I generally have a a good feeling. You know. There's nothing that I, other than maybe Bendis' Justice League that I think is kind of frustrating, but I can kind of just, I choose to ignore it. Uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm, enjoying the, I'm enjoying the DC universe. Yeah, I agree. A um, little bit too much Batman, but for the most part, things seem to be uh, on track. So uh, as far as collected editions this week, there's a couple of things. 
there is a massive, massive uh, deluxe edition hardcover, uh, new 52 10th anniversary deluxe edition hardcover for $29.99. And there's also a uh, Fourth World Omnibus by John Byrne. Um, so Fourth World Omnibus hardcover, $75. Uh, and then the last thing I'll mention, there's a Dark Knight's death metal soundtrack, uh, which is this big package of vinyl records that uh, apparently are songs that um, that Scott Snyder and I, I think Greg Capullo, maybe the whole creative team, um, it's like selected that you're supposed to listen to, uh, you know, while you're reading Dark Knight's death metal. So, yeah, so those are some uh, of the other DC things that are out this week. I do want to give... Uh... Uh, I do want to give a shout out to a, um, just a minute here. I'll give it, I want to bring you back in here. I want to give out a, sh a shout out to the, to the Suicide Squad movie. Heard good things. Haven't yeah, seen it. And, uh, I, I love it. I, I'm not, I won't say much about it. I'm not going to spoil anything, but uh, man, it, it's an adrenaline rush. It's, it's a fun popcorn movie. I encourage everyone to go. And I uh, definitely, I'll, I'll probably, I'll be doing my own review of it. Uh, everyone and their dog has already reviewed it, but I'm going to do my own review because I had fun putting some thumbnails together. And, uh, but man, what, what a fun movie, you know, and it's, uh, it's definitely fun. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy it, Jason. Are you going to be seeing it this week? Or are you going to, you have enough time to see it or what? Uh, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't know why. Like I used to be just so excited to see, superhero movies um dc especially and lately i don't know i just the desire to to watch them is just not hasn't been there so i don't know I'm, i may watch it i may not um but i i'm not setting aside any specific time to to watch it i'll put it that way oh man well you you should you should. You really should. If all the if if ever there was a DC movie where I think you'd you really enjoy doing that, it, it's this one. It's definitely. Uh, it's it's. I I think it's one of the better ones. You know, but hey, but hey, hey, and you get you get and I challenge you if you've never if you if you haven't seen spoilers, I challenge you to guess which which ones die and which ones live, because you'll probably be wrong. <laughs> yeah i don't want to say because i have a pretty good idea of one i know for sure makes it through um well two yeah because some are you know, easy guesses to, yeah like, i mean they're they're doing a punisher or a a, a peacemaker uh, tv show so obviously he makes it through yeah uh yeah but <laughs> anyway pretty pretty interesting heard like i said i've heard good things i haven't heard too many things in the middle i've heard from a few people that absolutely hated it and then I, most most of the feedback I've seen uh, has been overwhelmingly positive. So it seems like a, a win. But then I've also seen some negative stuff about, oh, I didn't do box office, what they thought, blah, blah. I'm like, you guys still know there's a global pandemic going on, right? Like, of course, <laughs> it didn't do gangbusters uh, at the at the box office. Plus, it's on HBO. Like, if I'm going to watch it, I'll watch it on HBO Max. I'm not going to go to a theater to watch it. Um, that just takes too much although i've heard it's great in imax because it's eye candy and yeah. seeing starro I, I must admit there's an attraction to seeing starro on a big yeah. giant you know 40 foot imax screen and, but and and if you go see it at imax they, they hand out you get a free comic book you get a free jim lee penciled uh comic book if you go see it in imax is what i'm told mm -hmm. huh? so right on another good news uh, 
Yeah, but again, that just takes more time, and time is my most precious commodity. So uh, anyway, speaking of time, you got anything coming out this week you want to plug, Rocky, before we finish uh, up? I, well, I I will be doing uh, – I was I I hope to get to it. I will be doing a, I will be having fun with the Suicide Squad review, a spoiler filled review, and I'm um, also an Infinite Infinite Frontier uh review as well with uh spoilers and everything. So hopefully I'll be able to get those out this week and I I also want to review issue 2 of uh um uh, Dark Knight Nation's uh, Helix Project because uh, I prom you know I I promised myself that I would review that because I reviewed issue one and I want to I want to get the review out for issue two and you know encourage people to check out and contribute to uh, the Helix Project uh, contribute to that Area Fifty One the Helix Project issue three is uh, is a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, I have some creator own stuff coming up. Um, some creator own spotlights coming up this week. Uh, just need to actually. Get them, get them recorded. We'll see if I can get one out in time for Wednesday. But otherwise, yeah, look for our regular Wednesday New Comic Book Day episode. And I just haven't had time with the auction uh, that I held a couple weeks ago now to really uh, be doing much podcast stuff. But hopefully that's going to change in the near future. You're going to see a bunch more content coming out just in time for uh, the end of summer. So uh, as always, we, we appreciate everybody listening. We appreciate your support. If you're listening just on the podcast to the audio only, be sure you head over to YouTube to the comic boom X uh, exclamation point uh, channel and give Rocky a subscription. Be sure you ring that notification bell. So you know when he has new content up and give this, uh, this episode a like and comment and let us know uh, what books you really liked or uh, thoughts about Tim Drake going on a date with a guy, whatever you want, just leave some comments. We always appreciate hearing from listeners. Uh, conversely, if you're over on the YouTube channel, watching this on the comic boom channel, uh, we appreciate you subscribing to the comic source on whatever uh, podcast platform you prefer. We're on all of them, Spotify, Stitcher, Google play, uh, you name it. We are there. Uh, or you can just subscribe uh, from your favorite podcast app. Uh, just do a search for the comic source and you'll find our RSS feed. So uh, yeah. As I said, we appreciate everybody listening as always and appreciate your support and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.